We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams. We are presented to you by BetUS, and this is going to be our March mailbag episode. Yeah, still mail in 2022, Alan. Not email, not a text message, not a TikTok video. Still a good old mailbag, alive and well. As always, if you like the content on this show, you can follow us on social media, sub to our YouTube channel for film breakdowns, and become a patron on Patreon, where you can provide us with a delicious dono. That's right, a delicious dono. As always, shout-outs to B-Red and Bam Shane for helping us compile our content. And, Alan, despite the fact that we have not been on the air for several weeks, we did have a few new donos and some new patrons that we will give some love to. Seth Thompson coming in with a small dono, welcome to the family, and letting us know, and perhaps letting all of Gator Nation know, for those of you that don't know, that it is not Gervon Dexter, it is Jervon. Jervon Dexter. He knows this because he went to high school with him and knows him seemingly quite well. So Jervon this year, make sure you get that right, everyone, Jervon Dexter. Uh, also coming in with another level up, the second level up from Sydney Singleton, just further increasing his uh, his support of the show. Thank you, Sydney. We appreciate it. And still on the throne is Jason Walker. Two shows now in a row where he's presiding over a relatively calm rebuilding period here for the Gator Nation. And Alan, how are you feeling before you read our dono stuff? You know, back on yeah. the air, back in the studio. How are you feeling over That's there? That's great. I love this March mailbag. A lot of fun questions by you guys. So thanks for sending them in. Good to be in touch with a lot of you guys and answer some some interesting questions, some fun questions, some out there questions. So I'm excited to do it. I've been looking forward to it all week. And I know you're excited about reading off our Dono Legends, who now of have course. reached an esteemed $500 of total support throughout their lifetime, which is amazing. Again, we're always humbled and honored for all the support we receive, both verbally uh, through the electronic world, and as well as obviously through Patreon. So thank you for your support of this show. It means the world to Alan and I. Okay, let's let's talk about him here. Starting with the big homie, 
Lil Payton, Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stashmi, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marshallisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truitt, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Rummery, and Craig Scarado. Thanks to each and every one of you. Here we are, James, in the spring. Middle of spring practice, or I guess close to the end of spring practice for the Gators. The orange and blue game is a few weeks away here. This is kind of an interesting time for everybody. Everything is going well. The sun is shining. Spring is here. Optimism abounds across the country. (laughs) Rumors of anything and everything, guys coming, guys going. How do you usually feel this time of year? Do you like it? I love it. It feels amazing. Uh, I, I had a chance to be in Alaska a couple of weeks ago, and that was amazing. Rugged, unspoiled beauty. But you really feel the power of spring when you yeah. come back from a place that has a true winter. <laughs> there you go. And everything is so green. It's almost um, it's almost hard to put into words like how it feels when you've been in this stark winter wonderland of, of all snow, not a lot of trees, or the trees that are there, obviously, in, in winter mode. And you see it, and I think that's that's the feeling that goes around during spring. It's a time of renewal, time of rebirth, uh, and obviously just a great time to be in Florida alone with the weather. Now, you mentioned the spring game, Alan. Are you a fan of the game moving from Saturday at 1 p.m., its traditional slot, to a Thursday night where it will be fully televised? Yeah, I kind of like it. And this is a little bit selfishly. I like it. Those Saturdays are often like just brutally hot. The one or maybe two years that we had it at on a Friday night under Dan Mullen, I thought were great. Now, again, I understand people want to bring their kids. It's a great opportunity so that sometimes is not feasible at night or it is during the day on a Saturday. But I think they had to move it off Easter weekend. That was a mistake by then. I think they realized. And, yeah, I think it's going to be fun on that Thursday night. I'm, I'm going to go. Yeah, Easter weekend was definitely some sort of oversight that occurred. But also, you know, you get full television coverage on Thursday yeah. night, which I think is probably the, the the big carrot for the program. And I think in general, as you said, night games are just a lot better that time of year. You may get lucky and get a colder weekend. It does happen. But if you don't, it's pretty uncomfortable to be in the swamp at that time of year, whereas Thursday night's going to be a great yeah. time and a great vibe. And again, I think it's a chance for Florida to own whatever coverage exists for spring games during this time of year, which in the world of just constant cameras and, and and video logs and everything else, I don't love it, obviously, but it's the world we live in. And if you're living in the recruiting world, which we know Napier does, the more exposure you get for your program, the better it is. Okay. It's also pro day today. So we're recording this here on Monday afternoon. Uh, a lot of Gators working out. Some of them, who were at the Combine, like Kyrie Elims, other, others who were not invited to the Combine, I believe, getting a chance to show off a little bit, maybe improve on some things they did, uh, or just confirm some things. You know, these pro days are always interesting. Again, you see some hype coming out of them. Some guys disappoint. Some guys maybe make moves. Yeah, I I think this is a gr- really important moment for those guys who are lower down, who weren't invited to the Combine, but might get a look at being an undrafted free agent because of something they did the pro- at the pro day. But otherwise, it's just kind of a lot of hoopla. Yeah, it is a lot of hoopla, but it's a lot of fun if you're paying attention. Within the past week, you may have heard of the the undersized player who's a gunner who ran a you know a four two one in his pro day forty, and he ran it twice. And he's like a hundred and seventy five pound, you know, no, five I didn't foot, hear about this five foot ten white guy 
who has been a has been a gunner. I'm, I'm blanking on the team he's on now. You can look him up. Um, but there there were multiple NFL teams that have reached out to him now for a potential special teams position because he's just so fast. And it wow, came from amazing. his. I mean, he was playing, but it wasn't really until they watched him do it multiple times at his pro day. So pro days can, of course, just you know help you kind of move from an undiscovered gem to something discovered. And it's a nice time for a lot of these players to come back and kind of get one last hurrah, long snappers, et cetera, kickers. They all get their chance in front of some scouts. Uh, so a good time. All right, let's, let's pop into the, the mailbag here, Alan. Why don't you start us with the off-season questions? You've categorized these very nicely for us, and then I'm going to take the next grouping, which okay. will be recruiting, and we're going to move through it as best as we can here. We have a lot of questions. Thank you for sending them all in, and a lot of these questions are obviously great some spoiler alert we're not going to be able to answer because they're going to be content that we have to save for the opening of the season but most of these will give you our best answer and some of these we'll just be able to like answer way 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 better of course later and right now it just we'll give you our best yeah you know we'll have fun with it too all right the first one is from longtime listener alexander smith i'd like to know generally how you think billy napier is doing with both recruiting and culture creation what do you hear out of the program in terms of how happy the athletes are with the change? Also, isn't there a new weight room and athletic facility opening? So I think if you're, I'm going to mark these, the, all the questions that go to like scale, I'm going to go, you know, zero to 10. And this is going to be a 10 in terms of how happy the athletes are with the change, how happy I am with the recruiting changes and culture creation right now, 10 out of 10. That's everything I hear locally. It's what I hear from from people that are more inside the program. It's what I'm seeing in terms of what's being put out there content-wise and the buzz that's being generated for Florida football. This is something you and I talked about, Alan. We got this question a lot with Dan Mullen. There's always a contingent of fans that's afraid of changing because they feel like you're becoming irrelevant or it takes so much time to get back. And the reason the three-year rule works is it doesn't take time to get back if you have a coach who knows what he's doing. And you are already seeing that within months now of Napier's hire on the recruiting trail. There is so much buzz amongst players that are being recruited with how Florida feels, the culture, the style. All of a sudden it looks cool. It is cool. The brand is cool. And that's what you know. good branding does. So 10 out of 10 there. And then as far as the, the weight room and athletic facility, yes, that's going very well. You can see that Strickland gave a sort of small video update on his Instagram page if you want to check that out right now. When that is open, are we going to do a verbal walkthrough? Probably not because they're going to give you a full walkthrough, full access to it. It will be on every webpage imaginable for Florida once it's done. And you can get a good look at it. But it is very nice. It's coming along nicely. It connects directly towards the indoor practice facility. It will be a super efficient operation for the football team, and they'll be basically siloed right there. Everything they need will be housed in those two buildings. So it, it's going to be great for the coaches, the the strength staff, and the players from a development standpoint. Yeah, I think Billy got to come in and make some easy changes that were like very high felt needs. Well, whether they're all that important or not, to the overall success of your program, I think it made the players feel cared for. And the two that come to mind were the parking around the stadium. He got that fixed for them. I don't know what that means, whether he got the university to stop ticketing them or whatever. But everyone, that's all they were talking about at the beginning. It was very Ted Lasso-esque, if you follow the show, where he comes in and he fixes the showers immediately. Where it's a small thing, but it's kind of meaningful. It shows that you pay attention and that you care. And the that, I think, made the players feel seen. And like, oh, you care about more than just 
what is happening to us. And then there's lots to be said about food. I don't know. Were they getting underfed? I don't know. Maybe it's better food, more food, who knows, but they're stoked about that. And as someone who spends a lot of time with university students, that's an easy way to their, when their affection is to feed them well. And again, you know, does that like make you a championship team? No, but I think it shows that Napier is intent on looking at every detail of the program and trying to do the best he can. Of course, there's some things you can't fix that, you know, just a fact of life or geography or whatever, you know, that new facility isn't done yet. They're dealing with it. It's fine. Right. But wherever he can enter in and fix stuff, I think that's important. And it shows that he is invested in the player experience, which for better or worse is a really important feature of modern college football. Okay. This next one's a fun one. Just because of the timing, BW Pridgen sent in this email and you'll, you'll be able to tell uh, when they send it in. So it says, so with Graham Hall reporting in today's Gainesville Sun that by all accounts, Emory Jones is going to spring practice as the number one QB on top of how complimentary Billy Napier has already been in public about Emory. Is it fair to begin wondering if some conspiracy is afoot? So I'd gone back and forth in real time in email with, uh, with BW and thanks for the question, BW. And it played out exactly as we discussed on our, our email thread. So obviously this was right after our podcast episode. We said at the end we were going to do a mailbag, and he, he was, writes us this as it's happening in real time and over the course of those weeks. And it played out in a way that should make every Gator fan, including myself, very happy. And that's the reason we're including this, because this is a fun way to talk about the it process. It is, here. and it played out in a way that I felt like it, it obviously should have played out in. And, and what we said, and uh, you know, behind closed doors, or to other people that asked us questions, if you message us directly, the consistent thought from our end was this. Napier is going to allow all of the players that had started or played or had put something on film in game reps to be the number one guys, and then he was going to allow them to get beat out. And that's exactly what I would do. As a coach, I did the same thing on my own, you know, flag football team, my coach, which is obviously not nearly as high stakes as this, but it's the best way to do it. You don't want to come in and immediately anoint your own guy or a more talented guy on paper. You just, hey, you were number one last year, you're number one now, you're going to get your shot. But the great thing was within three practice days, and I don't know what happened, we don't know, we weren't at practice, but within three practice days, Emory Jones transfers out, which I have to imagine is because there must have been a conversation and or a rep scheme change where all of a sudden he's no longer probably even in the top three. He's down to number five. Of taking reps. And he knows. And he's out. But that's what good coaches do. And and I think that was best for the program. And I think it showed the team everything. One, he wanted Emery to stay. Two, he gave Emery a chance in the field. And three, Emery wasn't good enough rather than anything else that could have happened. And that's, uh, that sends a clear message to this entire football team. This regime change has already occurred. This is no longer a loyalty game. It's not a favorites game. It's not a what you did last year game. It's not a where you were on the depth chart game. What are you doing right now in practice? So that's the kind of message I think you want to send as a coach. So no, it was not a conspiracy. People were worried about all these things, and understandably so to be worried. But this should give you a lot of confidence that what we have already observed on film with Billy Napier's coaching style at Louisiana is carrying over to Florida. And of course, we'll spend our entire podcast seasons covering this program in detail on film. But right now, excellent start with how things went with Emory. So this is interesting, though, because it's not a zero-sum game here, at least as I 
can do the scholarship math, that they actually made him had a conversation about him staying. So there had to be something that they wanted. Maybe it's just what you're talking about. This would be a really important culture building piece. Not that we ran the old guy off that we gave everyone a chance to compete because if he does decide to stay, even if he's number five on the depth chart, that's a scholarship that you're holding on to when, you know, we're going to be at a crunch theoretically, if we want to bring in more transfers, things like that. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe he wanted him to come in and compete or maybe there's a sliver of a chance there where we can get him not to be the starter that we, he can be, if he wants to stay, He's a guy who's played minutes, and if we could up his level, that he could be a competent guy, that you can never have too many quarterbacks and someone's going to transfer. You don't know what's going to happen. Maybe both freshmen leave and Jack Miller gets injured, and all of a sudden you're down to one scholarship quarterback. So maybe there's some of that kind of, let's see what we really have in the spring before we chase anybody off prematurely. But I think (laughs) so much PTSD from Florida fans. Normally the starter's staying longer, and you're like, well, who knows? There's that's probably you know fine if he sticks around, but just the anxiety from people that he might actually end up the starter was hilarious. I mean, because I felt it too. It was like, what's happening? I feel like I'm you know in Crazyville all of a sudden. But I, I think having seen this and seen the results so quickly, I think it does build more trust in Napier and his regime. Okay, another little. Jeffrey, another question about Emory from Jeffrey Hoy. Would love your thoughts on Emory transferring. What do you think changed between Emory's recent interview last week when he said he's recruited by Napier and excited for the fresh start here to the most recent news of his transfer? Anything else you would add to that? Yeah, and I'm glad we left it here for this reason. I'll piggyback. I say this moment, I'll piggyback on what you had said. Um, So what changed and what did Napier say to Emory? This is pure speculation. I have no inside information here. I think the conversation went like this. Emory... You're a semester away from graduating at the University of Florida, a school you have started at and you want to finish at. You want to finish your degree, first of all. Second of all, I promise you'll get a fair shake and you're going to start as the starter and someone's going to have to beat you out. Number three, if it doesn't work out for you, you can transfer. There's no harm, no foul. Um, you're going to be here anywhere in the spring. You're going to be here anyway in the spring. You want to finish your degree. You know, you're going to miss spring ball and have to go somewhere else and compete for fall ball. Uh but that was already set in motion when Emory kind of hesitated on what he was doing in the first place. So to me, I think that was probably the holistic conversation that occurred. Napier just is not a guy by all accounts that's going to blow smoke up anyone. I think that was the clear scenario. Here's your options. Here's what could happen. If it doesn't work out for you, you still have this on the table, but you'll have a degree and you'll be done and you'll be a college graduate and you can go play football anywhere else you want next year and, and see where it takes you. So I think that's what happened. I think in between those moments, the fans, as you mentioned, panicked. I myself had a moment of panic. I trusted Napier, but you're still thinking like, okay, I'm jaded, right? Right. I mean, how many podcast episodes did we spend in the past eight years with horrific management by our coaches? Just the most logical thing didn't happen. And now the most logical thing did happen. And it feels good to be able to say, yeah, that's what should have happened and it happened. So understandably so, we were all kind of a little bit on edge for that, but I think, and again, that's all speculation. I have to imagine that's what happened. And if that did happen, that's really great. And that's why I think you had the news and the way it went down. And I think in the, at the end, Emery will be thankful for this decision. He finishes out. He's transitioning on. He'll go play somewhere else. And, and I'll say it again for the last time. 
having watched Emery on film, he needs to step down a decent clip in talent level, competitive level, if he wants to still play quarterback. If that's just how he wants to finish his college career, and that's great. I love playing quarterback too. He needs to not do it in a Power 5 conference. He's just not good enough. So go play somewhere else where you can win a job and have some fun and finish out your career and go on to whatever you do in life. And by all accounts, again, Emery, you know, never saw the program, never said anything bad publicly, uh, was here with with the regime change in Mullen, endured a bunch of different stuff, really should not have been on the field for moments when he was that caused a lot of ire of Gator fans, and now leaves with a degree and moves on to the next phase of his of his football life and his his life in general. This happens a lot, but it's got to be a tough pill to swallow if you're a you know near five star quarterback prospect. And again, this happens all the time, but you're not probably good enough to start at the D1 level. That you're basically thinking when you're a high school senior, I'm on my way to a 10 year NFL career. And that's just not in the future for him. So no, it's not. That's yeah. tough. That's, that's tough. And yeah. so I feel for him on that. Like, again, we all have to deal with reality, uh, you know, but that's a challenging one. Yeah, not easy. And I think as an athlete, the goal of any athlete or really in life, anything you're doing, right? Which your goal should be is to is to exhaust all of your natural ability and then put your head on your pillow and be happy with where you've been able to get to. If you've exhausted every talented, you know, ounce of your of your body, every strategic cell in your brain and you can only get so far, then you say, "Hey, look, you know what? I just wasn't created to be good enough for this at this level, but I was in the top 5% of all people that played it to get here. And that's great. There's no shame in that. Nothing wrong with that, right? Hardly anybody's good enough to play at the highest level. There's nothing wrong with that, but make sure you give your all. And I think Emery did give everything he had to it. Just didn't have the tools it took to get to that next level. All right, let's switch to recruiting. As all of you know, and if you're new to the show, I'll give you a reminder how Alan and I follow recruiting is very macro. Uh, obviously, you've heard us talk about our tier system. We talk a lot about the necessary amount of talent you have to have rather than micro what individual player is coming, all the drama surrounding it. Of course, we're aware of that, uh, but we just don't cover that as much. So as we answer these questions, and a lot of these questions are macro-oriented anyway, just keep that in mind as we go through them. All right, Rafael Fernandez is talking about NIL, and much like we talked about already, uh, he's for an open market, but there seemingly are no rules. There's collectives pouring in money and essentially looking, he's looking to have some order to what's going on. Uh, if kids wanted to be treated as professionals, then they're going to have to get paid. And if they're going to get paid, why not have a draft? If you have a draft, you rule out the whole pay to play. They can sign NIL deals after they've been drafted. They have contracts with schools. They can't just leave. So essentially, how do you feel about a draft for college football? Is this a possibility, Alan? Is this impossible? What are your thoughts? feels like an impossibility. And I agree. It feels really crazy right now with NIL. There was an article that Stuart Mandel of The Athletic did about a guy getting basically, he's like a high school junior getting like an $8 million deal over the course of his time. And I think we're going to see just some insane things over the next couple of years. And eventually it's going to level out. And I do think we might find our way to some logical regulation, maybe light regulation. Right now it's hard to know what to even regulate because you think you would have it fixed and you would spring like eight more holes in the boat, right? So not that you want to be restrictive, but you want to bring some order to the process potentially. I don't know if that's possible, but I think that's what people are going to be looking to do and all eyes are going to be on this. So I think it will be you know, high enough value that people will try and figure it out. 
But the draft idea, I just don't think it's possible. You have so many disparate institutions. College football can't even agree on what playoff to run. They're going to agree on like a draft for high school players. That that feels like, one, it would get struck down by the courts potentially because I don't know how you would collectively bargain that with people who aren't employees currently. So you're going to collectively bargain with high school athletes? I don't know. Um, so it's either get struck down by the courts even if they tried to do something as crazy as that. Um, but, yeah, it's a hot mess right now. Yeah, it is, and we covered this obviously in a previous episode, so I won't go through my my rant that I went on on the NIL. Uh, but I will say this: for a draft to happen, or for anything else to happen, including some of the ideas that I had suggested on a previous discussion, you have to have, I think, a conference or two or three or whoever break out of the NCAA. There is no other way to do it. The NCAA has lost the authority to be able to even do this stuff, and they've already showed you what card they're playing, which is the here you go. Have fun. We're out of it. So you're going to have to have an SEC basically secede and say, we're now going to create our own rules. And in the SEC, you're allowed you know, one transfer or no transfers or whatever. And if you want to play here, here's how it works. Of course, NIL is still available, so you can get whatever money you want. Uh, but they could then create their own rules. But they'd have to be apart from the NCAA. I can tell you for a fact that Athletic directors are considering all options. This is untenable for them for the future. They do not see this being a path that's going to work in the long run. Things will change. How they will change, I can't tell you other than to say there's going to have to be a voluntary, coordinated effort to create rules, much like you see in pro leagues. And the only way that happens is to basically not be affiliated with your university through the NCAA. And you can imagine how complicated that's going to be. So we'll see what happens in between now and then, but it is the Wild West. Lane Kiffin continues to make, I think, extremely good points, maybe the most salient points. Right. On NIL, of course, he's saying, as he says, what everyone else knows and is thinking, but he's just the only coach saying it. And I think as long as you have coaches willing to say that, then they're going to keep highlighting the issues that occur. And And this is NIL in a nutshell to me. The best analogy I can think of, and I gave it last time, is you have to imagine these colleges now are like museums and their donors essentially are supporting the art in the museum just because they like that particular art. And whoever's going to buy a piece from Da Vinci just pays whatever they want to pay for it. And if your art museum in Gainesville, Florida has more dollars to throw around than the art museum in Tallahassee, then you can pay for the art. And therefore you can bring in more patrons, but it's not even really about bringing in patrons, right? It's about having the fanciest art. And that's kind of what's happening with, oh, you know, Texas A&M is they're willing to pay money for all of the art and they don't really care what it costs them. It's not about revenue or winning or whatever. They just want to win. They've wanted to win for a long time. Schools like Florida and others, perhaps our desire to win is not as high. We don't care as much about having a Da Vinci. We have 10 other things we can go do with our day. And that's unfortunate because I think sports does work best when you have small, you know, more rules that aren't just let me buy everything that exists. And we covered that in depth with free markets and other stuff and how it works and why the free market has competition, why this market's not a free market, etc. Uh, so again, you can listen to that episode. But long story short, this is just the beginning of the zaniness that's going to occur. And Alan, you said it best when the NIL first was coming down the pipeline. Of course, you had mentioned that this will, this will change everything that we know about football. It will not look the same. It is not minor. It is not small. It is not as simple as some athlete making money on a YouTube channel. And we are obviously a year into it and we are seeing that all right jeffrey hoy comes back around again asking about after signing day there was a back and forth between many people 
uh, Jimbo and Saban, Kirby uh, regarding the NIL, obviously. And, you know, Kirby and, and essentially Jimbo, right, kind of feels like he's being attacked because he's at the school that, of course, is spending the most money. So they're frustrated. So there's all these accusations being hurled here. And what Jeffrey is saying, essentially, do you feel like other coaches, in this case, Kirby Smart and Saban, are sort of just a little upset or a little mad, perhaps, now that the rules have changed? And because the rules have changed, Jimbo is sort of sitting on the throne of college football recruiting? So, potentially, but I don't think so. I, I think with Saban, he's shown that he's willing to like beat you at whatever game. But he's also said, I think some of these things are not good for college football. He talked about the spread, the number of plays. He said that and people thought, oh, he's just being bitter because he's losing. Well, he made it his own and beat everybody with it, right? And I think this is true, right? So A&M is a little bit of a first mover advantage, but Alabama will not seed anything. The fan base is enormous. They are insane. They will do whatever it takes, right? They will pull all the money in the state to (laughs) do whatever, right? So that's not the issue here, I don't think. Um, yeah, Jimbo is ridiculous, right? I love what Lane Kiffin said the other day, basically, you know, cause I guess Jimbo called him a clown and then Lane's like, this is like a NFL coach being like, oh man, we got all these great free agents that they didn't care about the contracts. They just wanted to come play for me. No one would believe that. That's stupid. Now all things being equal, right? There's a lot of great schools. You're going to have to do some great recruiting, but the money that AM was putting forward obviously was a differentiator for most people. And yeah, just so disingenuous for Jimbo to sit there all high and holy and pretend that NIL had nothing to do with it when, you know, months down the line, obviously the more we learn, the more we see how much this is just purely cash deals for a lot of these guys. And I love that you brought again Lane Kiffin into this because Lane Kiffin has all of a sudden become like this measured speaking person at times at times it's 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 crazy i continue to chronicle his transformation and it blows my mind but not only did he say you know hey a guy called me a clown he even actually gave a really measured response by saying yeah the money made a difference and and of course they wanted to play for the coach too like in the nfl it's both things he didn't just say jimbo's an idiot they're only playing for him because of money he actually even gave the measure that yeah of course they're interested in also playing for jimbo but let's be real the money is is an influence and I thought his example couldn't have been any better than it was for the NFL. Of course, it is. It is better. It does make sense. And this is just what it is. So I do think that I'm sure there are boosters that are going to be salty about the fact that A&M is able to sign who they sign because they're paying so much more money. There's going to be people that are saying this has always been happening and Bama and Georgia were cheating and now they're cheating, can't win because people are able to pay as much as they want. And and that's could or could not be true to a certain extent. Obviously, now you can pay whatever you want. There really are very few rules restricting it, and AM is, is desiring to pay more. I will still come back to something. I'm a big baseball fan. I'm a Baltimore Orioles fan, and as an Orioles fan, I'm doomed to be in the AL East, where you have the best small market team in the history of baseball, the Tampa Bay Rays, who manage a roster more efficiently than anyone has, maybe in any pro sport ever. I'll just put that out there. And then you have the biggest spending teams that sports has ever seen, in the Yankees and the Red Sox every single year in America. Now, obviously, you can talk about European soccer teams spending more at times. Yet the Yankees don't win every year. Hardly have they done that. Same with the Red Sox, same with other things. So competition is what it is. And you can spend whatever you want in baseball. Yes, you get taxed on it, but you can spend whatever you wanted. You still have to win on the field. And I think that's the edge that you mentioned that Saban has 
that he's going to continue to exploit. These talent differences between AM and and Alabama are going to be negligible as much hype as you know AM is getting. So we'll see what happens. Obviously, AM now is going to play with a loaded a loaded deck, right? But still a lot to yeah. be said and done with. You cannot generally just buy your way into long-term success in sports. It can be done sometimes. Heisinga did it with the Marlins back in the day. It is very hard to do it. That's what makes sports unique in the first place. So don't just assume that you're going to see A&M win every single year now. That's just not how this works. Well, and even though they had a historic recruiting class, it wasn't like it was that far ahead of Georgia and Bama, right? And there's those guys are still just as talented top to bottom, right? You can only have 85 guys. So they're, I think they moved themselves into that category. So it's not like, oh, they have the best class. Now they're they're going to trash everybody. They're, they're not there yet. Um, and you know what's going to be really interesting with all of these collectives, right? We're going to get to this next with Florida. That these are independent institutions, right? There theoretically is no crossover. Now, again, of course, maybe, maybe not, right? But what happens when you sign a guy to this massive deal and the coach doesn't want him or the coach changes or maybe you're recruiting all these people who, yeah, there's different opinions about, right? This is going to be really fascinating to see how this shakes out. There's already been a guy allegedly at FSU who's left because of an NIL deal, like sat out spring practice and then peaced out in the middle of spring practice because his NIL deal wasn't getting paid because he wasn't showing up to the stuff he was supposed to be showing up at. I mean, this is going to be insane for the next couple of years. Get ready for lots of these types of stories. And that's the positive side of things is, is the, and I've, I've mentioned this before, right? And again, I'll spend just one, one or two sentences here. The European soccer academy model is not perfect. There's no perfect model when you're talking about young men and women entering into a pro sports arena before really you're a fully formed adult with life experience to make these tough decisions. I don't, I don't care what structure you choose. It's not Hogwarts. There's no Dumbledore. You don't have someone overlooking what's going on. Nice reference. Even the there, best like guidance counselors are going to, it's just not perfect. But the more structure you have, the better because now you're an 18 year old and you're getting paid. You're a pro. You have to handle that as a pro. You have to show up. You must do your duties. You have to go to the things you have to go to. Um, and so, you know, with these NIL deals basically being thrown around in the most laissez-faire manner, you start missing stuff, you'll have consequences. You'll lose money. So I think that will help to a certain degree. There will be a responsibility placed upon players that have to fulfill. And with responsibility typically comes maturing. Uh, but as you said, this is going to be just a refining period you know, for the companies on one side, for the collectives on the other side, for the players on the other side, for the coaches, for the admins, everyone's figuring it out and we will continue to follow it. So for Florida, Caleb asks, can Florida compete with the other big SEC schools on all of this NIL madness? Are we willing to even compete with them or will we get left in perhaps a second or third tier status? That remains to be seen. Um, again, what are the rules going to be three years from now? Again, there, there's going to be like some first mover advantages here. Right. But I think in the long term, that'll be very telling, you know, just because you have one great recruiting class doesn't mean your program is set up for the next 30 years. Right. Uh, we've seen teams be in the top five and crash back down. So I, I think it's way too early to tell. I don't know how these collectors are going to be regulated. What's going to happen to them. I think Florida can compete. I think, the size of the Florida alumni base and the resources here would create the space for that. 
are we going to be a, are we going to get left behind? Well, we're currently behind, you know? So I, I don't know. I, I'm reticent to speculate in any kind of direction saying, Oh, Florida's going to be fine. Or we're going to get, you know, trashed because I have no idea really. Yeah. This to me is largely about the coaches. Coaches are like modern day CEOs. You can put a CEO in charge of Apple right now and they could squander the vast resources they have and fall behind some other competitor. So just because you have a tremendous amount of resources does not mean again that you will win. You have to utilize them. For Florida, I do think there is a main difference. One, on the NIL front itself, can we get companies to the table? Do we have a brand that's worth sharing? Do we get eyes on the program? Yes, as much as anyone else does. I understand that our social media accounts are much smaller than ones like Bama and others because they've largely been wildly underdeveloped. That can be fixed. But I also don't think that's going to drive major NIL deals. I do think growing up in Miami, where I was a Dolphins fan, where what is the what is the old adage on any Miami fan? If the team is not really good, they're probably not there. Why? Because there's simply a lot of stuff to do in the state of Florida. There's a ton of things that you can do to entertain yourself that you cannot do in Mississippi or Alabama or Texas, despite all the acclaim Texas gets. Your options are just far more limited for entertainment, for fun, for social stuff. So Florida and California sort of are the kings of like, we have a lot of stuff to do. And be really good, or maybe I don't care as much. And so I do think, Alan, that Florida grads, here's a big statement, alums, boosters, I don't think that their meter of desperation to win or desire to boost the Florida program is necessarily as high as some of these other schools, A&M, Alabama, Georgia. That That is true. Now, whether or not that puts us at a disadvantage comes down to what we keep talking about. Can Napier get us into that tier two recruiting level without having the extra monetary push that perhaps the donors and the collectives of these other schools programs are willing to give? Time will tell. I happen to think that will not make the difference in the long run. I don't think that's going to be what decides it. I think eventually players are going to start looking at NIL deals and they're going to say, okay, if I go to A&M, maybe I get an additional XYZ dollars and money does talk. But if I go to Florida, I still get a nice big fat NIL payday. Perhaps the culture, the system is better. They're winning more, whatever the case may be. It will be close enough that you're not just going to select how much money you are making. Look, NFL players do this all the time. They don't always choose a max contract. They don't. You don't know exactly what's happening behind the scenes, but they might get four or five contract offers and they may not choose the highest one. They'll choose the best fit, the best area. So I think you have to be in the ballpark. Obviously, if player XYZ is going to get $3 million from Bama and they're going to get five hundred grand from us, probably not going to get that guy. But I do think Florida, I think personally, is probably not as willing to pay in those collectives like some of these other Southern schools are, that it is like the feature thing for their entire state and potentially their entire lives. It just means more to them uh, than it does, I think, to Florida alums and boosters. That's just speculation, but that's what I feel like I've observed. And again, like if you're missing out on a couple of players at the top, top end, can you mitigate that? Like what is the actual difference in terms of talent that you're accumulating? Is it, like three degrees off, you can make that up. Is it 20 degrees off? Then you're probably sunk at the top end. So we'll see. 
All right. We will indeed. All right. Mark Mitchell says lots of early buzz and interest from four and five star recruits from the new staff and their approach. So here's a nice counterexample to what's been happening already. Clearly, obviously, we need this to happen for Florida to improve. That is correct, Mark. Uh, do you like what you see so far, Alan? Yes, question mark. Sure. I th- think the staff has been able to get in the homes of a lot more top recruits, right? Than I think the other one had previously. And again, this is me not like reading every recruiting report out there over the last five years. But that does seem to be the trend right now, whether that results in us landing the requisite number of guys to move into those top tiers of recruiting, I don't know, but it's not a bad thing. If you're not on anyone's radar at this point, then I think there's less of a chance you're going to be there in the end. doesn't mean you can't make ground up, right? So I think it's good news. It's a good sign, but ultimately is not the differentiator, but that's the best you can ask for at this stage probably. Is anyone on the staff in particular impressing you from a recruiting perspective? I don't know because I'm not in there, right? But it does seem like, does seem like we are in on a lot of high-level defensive backs. And this is just maybe correlation, could be causation, that you know, Coach Raymond is in there doing work. So maybe, maybe not. I think that given his track record and who we're in on, that would be an an easy thing to point to. Yeah, the evidence I think strongly suggests that he is far and away the best recruiter of of, of corners, and that is already visible. And do I like what I see so far? I love what I see so far. You know, when was the last time Florida had four and five stars visiting and talking about the program in positive ways like this? I don't know. Long, long time. Yeah. So this is great. This is the beginning. This is fantastic. At the end of the day, of course, I'm going to say what I always say. When the ink dries on the paper, when we look at Florida's class, this class is going to go a long way towards me personally being able to endorse where Napier goes. And I love everything. I'm 10 out of 10, right, where we are right now. Uh, you got you to gotta make them stick. But so far, the buzz is fantastic. And I think Raymond has been as advertised. And that was, look, largely reported as the best staffing hire maybe in a decade in college football. To steal him is something that changes the face of your program. And you're already seeing it with every single five-star DB putting Florida pretty much right up there. And if you want to win championships, get locked down corners. It changes how you can play defense. So significant. Yeah, and I'll just say this too. Um, with all of the stuff that's up in the air, I don't want to like get to December and be like, I'm making excuses for Napier. But this is going to be wonky. Right. There are so many variables and unknowns. It's not the same scale we've been using for the past like 15 years about what might happen. And as we sort through this NIL plus transfer stuff, I think he's going to do well. But I think, again, five years from now, we have a much better beat on like you're almost going to have to create like a new strata or a new test or what is the data going to show us because we're in this really crazy period right now that. I think the people who are going to be able to take advantage of it will do so early, but maybe there's some limiting factors that ultimately won't be limiting factors. So we'll have to see. I think the second one is going to, if it's doesn't mean that represents his ceiling potentially, but I think it's going to be a great indicator for where he's going to be moving forward. Daniel Gray asks two, four, seven now has team recruit team transfer and team combined overall ranking. So you sort of have a homegrown talent transfer ranking and combined ranking. 
he asks if we're going to start looking more at the overall combined ranking in our tiers. I think we'll have to talk about it, but I don't think it negates the high school recruiting. You know, I think maybe we'll answer this question as college football, you know, community later on. But right now, I don't think you can discount the high school recruiting for transfer portal. Now, again, your overall composite of talent has to be really high. If you have all these recruiting rankings and then you lose them all in year one, then obviously you're screwed. So looking at that composite is an important indicator, but it's not, it's another data point, but I don't think it erases the importance of the previous one. Yeah, this is a great question. I'm going to go back to baseball again. Baseball is the best example of this because baseball has homegrown farm talent and it has free agency, which is what football is developing. Except obviously you can't contractually obligate your farm grown talent, which is, which is a real problem that we keep coming back to. But Clearly, the combined overall ranking is going to be the most important ranking. If you're just going to take one snapshot ranking, what does your team look like? That's the most important one. But it doesn't tell the story. The reason why the best baseball teams have excellent farm systems is that is your culture. That's your identity. Those players spend three to four to five years in the minors learning how your organization plays the game of baseball. Then they get to the bigs and they're plugged in into the system that you run. So you can't just pick up free agents who have no idea what your culture is, what your system is, what your locker room is, and plug them in and expect it to work. They have to be a satellite piece of the puzzle. So I think the answer to that question is both matter a lot. And combined will be nice. It will be the one metric you probably look at the most. But you got to factor in how well are you doing on that homegrown talent. And then are you getting the puzzle pieces you need to fit in via free agency to take your team over the top? A good example of this, obviously, is what the Los Angeles Rams did to win a Super Bowl last year. They went heavy free agents. They felt like they had a window and they hit it. They had some impact players they needed, right? But the culture of that team was built by Sean McVay. And it was an, the identity was in Sean McVay's image. It was not a, a random assembling of talented transfers, much like Florida's basketball team was this past year. And a lot of other basketball teams have been. You, just ha- you have to have more of that homegrown talent. So good question. All right, for Chris, what benchmarks, Alan, are there for us grading Napier on his recruiting success beyond the tiers? I think what he's really looking for here is what is the timeline we should be looking at? Does the end of spring matter? Does August matter? What matters on the way to the path of a class? Honestly, I'm I'm going to say, just be real here and say, I don't know. I don't know what this looks like under NIL. Traditionally, you would want to see some a lot of these guys – be in the class before the start of the fall. And then that you're kind of building and consolidating it. And you're not trying to close it all in December, but I don't know. I don't know how this stuff is going to roll out. Um, I think you would want to see an accumulation of guys committing, right? So there's obviously some dead periods in the calendar. So I wouldn't want to get too high or too low on this, like, because the way you're having to work through these NIL scenarios and having to work with these collectives that could just totally throw off these timelines where there's smoke, there's fire and you need to have a lot of smoke if you want to land a strong class. So let's start with that. It doesn't, what we knew heading into last year under Mullen was that there wasn't a lot of smoke and that was not going to lead to a good class. It was falling off. Right. Uh, so if your program has tons of smoke around it, it means you've got a lot of embers. You've got a lot of, you got a lot of fires building and growing and you get a chance for right something to really catch. And so I think what you want to see as this year goes on is you want to keep seeing what we're seeing now. 
this buzz building, these fires starting, the smoke rising. And then you have a good chance that when the smoke clears at the end, the fire's done, that you have something worthwhile, right? You're forging something worthwhile. So that's what I would be looking for is continued buzz and branding and building and exposure. Uh, Top tiered guys wanting to take visits to Florida. It doesn't mean, as you've said, Alan, it doesn't mean you're going to land these guys. It's very possible some of these guys are going to want to go to Florida, but the money is going to speak elsewhere. And like Lane Kiffin said, hey, most people out there take jobs because someone gives them a better offer than what they're doing. That's what they do. They take a higher paying job. So you have to keep that in mind. But I think that's what we'll be looking for. And that's not a data-based metric. You can't just look at that because, again, the commitments are commitments till they're done. But you got to have that smoke. you got to have those leads, so to speak, in the pipeline. But I would say if we get to the start of the fall and the class is still fairly empty, that's not a good sign, probably. Again, with a lot of caveats about how things are currently working. Correct. Yeah, you want some momentum from some of your anchor guys to be able to build and pull guys in. That's correct. All right, here's Barry. Here's a breakdown of our current crystal ball situation. And by crystal ball, this is like 247 other places, like, you know, predicting where these guys are going to go. On on offense, top one, this is way early, right? But the question is going to matter. Top 100 uh, for offense, one. There's three on defense with both five stars being defensive backs and the other one offensive player being basically, you know, number 100. Uh, 101 to 300, two offense, two defense. So then he's basically saying... The trend seems to be that this staff's able to attract high-level D talent better than the other side. This could be due to Corey Raymond. Um, if the trend were to hold, would that concern you? So if the trend holds, which I would argue right away out of the gate, being a momentum investor and a trend follower for a living, this is way too short to call this a trend. But let's just call it that for the question and say, if the trend holds, does that concern you? Yes. I mean, you want it roughly even. Um I think you probably, hmm, this would be an interesting data project because the offensive line are generally like lower rated players. And again, you want those four and five star guys, but you're always going to be taking three star guys, presumably that on defense, maybe you could get away with almost taking very few of those guys because the positions you're looking at are easier to rate and you want to have those more premier guys. So maybe collectively, generally your, your defense might be higher rated but you don't want to get in a must champ situation where, hey, you've got a like a top five class, but almost all the impact people are on defense. I don't think Billy Napier is going to allow that to happen. Um, but you know what? A lot of the guys on the staff do not have the reputation of Corey Raymond. So if he's out in front early, that that makes some sense that he has less ground to make up with these guys because he was already recruiting them at LSU. He's a known commodity. And that reputation transfers over. Yeah, for me, if that trend held, it would be suboptimal. And then your follow-up question, Barry, is if we have a Tier 1 class, but it's heavily defensive talent, would I feel as happy about it? And for me, the answer is no, I would not feel as happy as if it was balanced. That seems relatively obvious. But I would still be cautiously optimistic because you're building a program. Right. And a Tier 1 defense can allow you to win a championship. Defense, in my opinion, still heavily influences winning a championship. You saw that last year with Georgia. And winning championships helps your recruiting, period. So I would be pretty happy, but not as happy as if you can get a balanced Tier 1 class. Right, and I think, too, having, like in year one, if you had a Tier 1 class and it was leaned towards defense, I think you would take whatever you can get in year one, right? Because you don't have your infrastructure built. You don't have all your rec- recruiting ties. Now, again, if that's 
spread out over the long term that consistently your defense is much higher in offense that's not sustainable you won't be there long enough to make that matter but i think you would see some differentiation over time right that hey we need to really load up at on defense because we we lost a lot of guys to the pros and injury and we're going to take more defensive players so this one is skewed in that direction you'll see that but again as you said this is too short to really call this a trend but projecting forward i for as intricate as Napier seems to be, that doesn't seem like that's going to be how he would allow this to play out. Okay, let's talk about our roster. There's a lot of questions here about different position groups. We'll try to answer these as best we can. The first one from Tyler. Will AR be our guy at QB? He looked good against the weaker opponents last year, but not against Georgia. Was that just because they were weak? And Georgia was strong, or did Mullen not scheme him right and sabotage him? <laughs> There's been a lot of talk about him being sabotaged for the Georgia game. And I think if there was a 30 for 30 documentary or, or a sort of true life mystery, you might be able to put some pieces together that make that quite compelling. Uh, I've really fallen in love with the F1 Drive to Survive series, thanks to uh, a few of my friends getting me into it. And, you know, they might they might be able to create some good some good drama if they had access to that that footage last year between how does he wind up not taking a snap at all, then starting against Georgia, then disappearing again, and the stuff that happened. But uh, in order of your questions, will AR be our guy at QB? Yes, he will be. Um, was he just good because the opponents are weak? No, he's really good. I've chronicled this on Film Study continually. Uh, Georgia also was really strong. And in that game, he was quite unlucky, which I chronicled heavily, despite the fact that it seemed like a lot of Gator Nation was, I think, on the wrong side of the film take of that Georgia game. It continues to be on the wrong side, judging by the questions I have gotten even this spring about can Anthony Richardson pass. And it's like, look, check out this YouTube channel. Watch the film. Yes, he can. He's a super gifted passer and field reader. Uh, So that leaves me with the fact that Against Georgia, Mullen's game plans were schizophrenic at best last year. They weren't great. Georgia had an all-time wonderful defense. We were down 3 nothing in that game, close to halftime. That was a competitive football game. We had chances, and some quirky things happened. I also don't think the play calls and what Florida was running were optimal for what, what was even remotely going on. Uh, but if AR is not the guy heading into fall, it will be because he's injured. That's the only reason I could possibly see at this point, given how he's trending, given what I know from the inside, that he's not going to be our quarterback. And, and there's no reason that you should not be extremely excited about this guy. It's very possible in this offense that he could become a transcendent Heisman winning quarterback. Yeah, I think he's got to be the guy. It's like Jack Miller seems like a nice player, but it seems very unrealistic to think he would unseat him. And nothing we've heard from those freshman guys that they're anywhere close to where he's at. And that Georgia defense was unbelievable. They're going to give anybody fits, and especially where we were as a program last year heading into that game. That was suboptimal. I, I don't think Mullen sabotaged him scheme-wise, but he definitely sabotaged himself by not playing Richardson. I mean, the the order with it she did things was the worst possible ordering. And we've talked about that a lot. So I don't think Mullen had a death wish. I just don't think he understood how to manage his roster and put himself in the best position to succeed. succeed, And that's ultimately what cost him his job. Okay. Jim Heinzman says, have you seen anything to indicate that our offensive line will be better? 10 years of bad line play is enough. 
And then Chris Walter says, who's left that offensive line after the season? Are we in real trouble at that position after this coming year? Have I seen anything? No, there's nothing to see uh, as far as this year's roster goes. And there's everything to see, which is how Louisiana's offensive line played under Billy Napier, which is excellent, fantastic, intelligently dominant. So it will be better. It will be better than it's been. Will it be dominant? No, the talent is not there. We've covered that. We're just not there yet. But you will see improved offensive line play. This will be a better unit mentally, strategically. They will do better than they have in the past. There will be less issues that they've had with regards to the things we chronicled heavily. But they're not going to be good yet uh, as far as top third of the SEC because they're just not as talented as other offensive lines in the SEC. Not yet. And to Chris's question... Who's left after this season? I'll let Alan answer that. Are we in real trouble? I want to say no, and I'm going to say no because the entire crux of Napier's offense, all of it, and I mean all of it, relies on the offensive line. And we'll talk about that more. All of it. It is, it is the most important position group generally, but for this offense, it is everything. So that is going to be a priority. That's why there's two offensive line coaches Tons of resources are going into picking up offensive linemen. In my opinion, we should only get better after this season. Now, next season is going to create some interesting, what you're talking about, transition areas. We're going to lose our best linemen by far in Guraj. So things are going to be interesting. But I want to say the trouble is over given the history of Napier and given where he's putting his chips on offense. This should get better. Alan, your thoughts? Yeah, I think... Barring a rash of injuries, this should be a fairly stable position bordering on, I don't want to say a strength of the team because that would be relative to our competition, but like fine, good, solid, above average, right? Most of the guys are coming back that you'd want to come back. So Garage, Ethan White, Kingsley, um, Tarquin, the buzz on him has been good. Again, we're, we're not watching the practices. Uh, Braun, and then the newcomer Osiris Torrance, who, I mean, by all accounts, should be, you know, all SEC type guy. And so that, you know, I just named six guys, right? So that's good. That's good news. Um, that's a little bit of insulation from injury. Hopefully, some of these younger guys will be developed into quality backups that, you know, can be serviceable in short term or maybe turn into guys that we feel good about. Who knows, right? That they're going to be coached differently. They're going to be developed differently. And a lot of them we haven't seen at all. So there's some guys from the the freshman class last year and the freshman class this year that we have almost no data on. So I think there's reason to be optimistic, as James said. And I think that starting lineup, however that shakes out, um, could be good. Not just not bad which is where it was kind of the year before, right? And then, you know, you mentioned like Garage. If, if someone like that goes down, I I named him my most important player last year. Or, and I think he, other than Richardson, you know, he, that might be him again potentially. But no team loses his offensive tackle and goes, yeah, we're fine. Those are tough to replace. There's a reason those guys get drafted in the top 10 and pay top tier money. If you have a good one, the drop there will be a drop off unless you're, just lucky to have a pipeline at that current moment. And that's very, 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 very rare. So I, I'm not fearful about that group right now. Like I was the last two off seasons and, you know, it might come back to bite us if you have a couple injuries and the other guys aren't ready, 
but you could say that about several groups. All right. Similar questions from Chris Barras and Wesley Heisick. What are your thoughts on the wide receiver room this year? I heard that there isn't top end speed you'd expect at Florida. How does Napier maximize this group? And also a question from Wesley about the slot position. Seems like we lack that dynamic shifty Tony type. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this, Chris, on the wide receiver group preview that uh, Copeland leaving was a monumental head scratcher given how Napier runs his offense. It's almost as if he has he probably did have just no idea what kind of feature guy he would have been in this offense, given that we frequently will use two receiver sets, which I've chronicled on the YouTube channel. When you use two receiver sets, the most important receiver is a vertical threat receiver. You run double moves. You, I mean, it's it's a dream as a receiver to be in that kind of system for deep passes, right? If you're a deep ball receiver, that's this is what you want. It's a system that you want. It gives you the most likely chance of getting the ball. If you run an air raid system in modern football, you're actually less likely to get the ball as a speedy deep threat because you're not going to let plays develop down the field as often. You're not taking a seven-step drop. You're not running play action. So we don't have that guy top-end speed-wise. Xavier Henderson's fast on film. He's fast, but he's not a burner. Um, Shorter, obviously, is not fast. He's a great possession receiver. So I I think the answer to the question of how does Napier maximize the wide receiver group well one napier wants to maximize the wide receivers and quarterbacks by having a good running game that's how it works right he wants to be able to run outside zone inside zone use play action use the pistol to generate simple reads downfield passes and easy throws so that's one and two that will maximize a less talented receiving group to a certain extent he will also go four and five wide and spread you out and take advantage of matchups use running backs etc so i think he'll try to create the most favorable matchups given what we have as a roster Uh, we are weaker at receiver i think than we should be despite the fact that on paper we do have some talented guys there and the slot we don't have a modern slot receiver. Modern slot receivers are guys like Tony and not to Tony's level of shiftiness. He's in the top, top percent of that. But modern slot receivers in the NFL are taking on more of a wiggle component. And we don't have that, really. You can look at Whittemore, who's who can play the slot, right? He can certainly play the slot, but he's not going to be juking you underneath. He's going to be a more traditional you know, make a move, possession receiver, intermediate guy. Those are fine. That works. I think he's good there. And you can look at several other options they're going to employ for that role. So that will obviously affect your your matchups as a team. I mean, if you have a slot guy who's dangerous, you think of Jalen Waddell in Miami, that changes how you run offense, much like having a tight end who can open the middle of the field. But again, and lastly on this one, Napier's goal, this is going to be different than what I would do as a coach um, or others might do is Napier is going to be looking for that that zone, the outside zone, the wide zone run to be the feature of this offense. And if that's going well, receivers are going to get open. And so you're not going to have to be quite as dynamic there. But you better believe he's going to want to have two super dynamic receivers that make the the safeties and the corners worried. That helps the run game. So it will be very interesting this year to see what he does with this receiving group. That's how I want to end this. It's going to be a challenge for him. I don't think he loves what he sees here. I think he's probably surprised, Alan, with what he sees here, given Florida's offense reputation and obviously what had occurred previously. Tony, Pitts, right? Name all the guys we can name that have been here in the past four or five years. This seems to be a more disappointing wide receiver room. Yeah, I think it's there's a lot of guys who are 
fine, or maybe can do certain roles, but the previous staff recruited for size at this position, right? Even guys you don't think of as that big, like Xavier Henderson is a pretty big dude and is more of a straight line downfield guy, Marcus Burke, who got him for one play against LSU, I think, and caught a ball downfield. They, we have some of those guys and we have some of the bigger body guys like Whittemore and Shorter who've proven to be excellent at blocking, who can be very good players for you. But Wesley's right. We are really in trouble with this slot position. Uh, so much so that we moved a guy named Finley Graham, who you might remember me saying, hey, we might use this guy as a punt returner. No, he's never returned a punt. He's never seen the field. They moved him from defensive back to slot receiver in the spring. I think hoping to get something there. Because you're right, I, a lot of times there's going to be more two receiver sets, but they are going to use three and four wide receiver sets, right? And you would like to have the ability to deploy that type of guy. And we might not be able to. And that doesn't mean you can't be successful as an offense. It just limits your variability and what you might do in, in certain situations against certain teams and certain matchups, right? If you can get that little guy against a linebacker, he's got no hope of covering him. That's a huge advantage. And we might not be there. Now, maybe somebody emerges, doesn't seem like that guy's going to be on the roster this year, but we'll see. Uh, I think wide receiver is prime to pick up somebody in the spring here. If there's one spot, it seems like you could pull a guy and you know what? There are slot guys around. This is not the most difficult thing to find in America, right? Cause you don't need to be six, four and run a four, four. Um, yeah. Maybe somebody pops free and, and we see a change there. That seems like a, if the right guy comes up along, this would be a prime place for him. Okay, Derek Taylor asked, given how they, meaning Napier, I guess, and the coaching staff, use tight ends as blockers more in this offense, how do you think they will use Elksness? So Nick Elksness, who's tall, lean, maybe the most playmaking tight end in the position group. I know he hasn't played much, but he is someone that might have big play potential, at least from what we heard last year. This is a good question of how will we use him? Uh, and I can just tell you from obviously film on Louisiana, it's going to be much more of an NFL-like tight end position, which should bode well for Florida's future recruiting of tight ends. Uh, very, The concepts are very similar to obviously what Shanahan runs with the 49ers. And if you follow the 49ers at all, you've heard of George Kittle, and he's one of the best, you know, one of the best tight ends in the business, and they feature him heavily. He's also an excellent blocker. So one, Napier is going to want his head ends to block and block really well. And two, he's going to want them to be able to work the middle of the field and play action. I think that's exactly what they're going to try to do with Elksness. Now, whether or not he's able to handle that yet, I don't know. But and I, he's currently hurt, and that's yeah, not helpful. And that's not helpful now either, right? And that's what we're talking about. There's a lot of factors that go into it. It's very complicated. It's very complicated to play tight end in this kind of system. It's an NFL system by all accounts, in the blocking game. That's why it's hard. Look, it's not hard for guys to go out and run routes. They can learn that quickly. Blocking is hard. Blocking in zone offenses is really hard. It's not just line up and block the guy in front of you. There's a bazillion rules you have to follow. If the defense changes before the snap, you have to make sure that you understand what you're doing and how your role changes. You have to be able to pass protect. You have to be able to block downhill. You have to be able to block power, block zone, block wide zone, block inside zone, and run routes. That's the goal, right? So missing time is not helpful, obviously. 
Uh, so we'll see, but I think you can safely say that again, Florida should remain a feature school for tight ends. It is a direct translation to the NFL. So if you're a tight end, you want to play in the NFL, this should be a system you're going to want to get a look in. Um, so don't expect tight ends to disappear because again, the thought is they use them as blockers more. Well, so does the NFL, right? Kelsey blocks all the time. He also catches 10 passes a game and that's the modern NFL tight end. I think at Louisiana, they never really had a guy that was talented at both. So they will default to a blocker if they don't have a guy who's gifted at both. And there's very few guys who are very few, right? So same thing will be true here. So that's what I'm going to say. He's going to default to using tight ends as blockers. He doesn't have the skill set. If he gets the skill set, they're going to become a major feature. So that might limit Elksness's production. If he can't see the field as a blocker, he's less valuable to you. There's other guys like Jonathan Odom, who's also hurt, who's basically more like a glorified lineman, I think, in terms of his projection. But he might see the field a ton as an inline blocker if he's really good at that, who can occasionally be a threat if you leave him alone in the middle of the field. Um, that'll be an interesting subplot for this because we have such a, a variance of body types along that tight end um, and what they want to do. They recently moved, I think, Dante Xander's back to tight end or at least giving him some reps there because I think they see that they're going to need more bodies there. And he's another big, big bodied, strong yeah. guy. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash Blue Wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash blue wire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Okay, Colin Crable. Back again, ask, what are your thoughts on the fullback position? Why did it become obsolete, and will it ever reemerge? 
Uh, two simple reasons why the fullback position became obsolete. One, the spread offense, which you basically eliminated a lot of power running, all power running in the most case. And your fullback was key in your eye formation and your power running. And two, the H-backs became in vogue. And that's really the real answer is fullbacks are on the field. They're just H-backs. So they're tight ends. You can use a slot receiver there. We saw Trent Whittemore do it last year. And your H-back is far more versatile. You can move him pre-snap from the slot. You can move him behind your, your guard. You can slide him across the formation. He can block anywhere. It's much more deceptive with where he goes. You can you can slip him out to catch passes. So first spread offense, which meant you had more dynamic athletes that could that were bigger and stronger and could also run routes. And then secondly, because of that, you're like, wait a minute. If I put this guy near the line of scrimmage, they have to account for him as an H-back, and he could still block or run a pass, and I threaten the defense more than I do with a fullback who's lined up three to five yards off the line of scrimmage can't really run a full route tree, has to be bigger and stronger to lead block from that position downhill. It just became a a more versatile position. It's a more versatile fullback is what an H-back is. And so I think that's why. Is it obsolete? You never want to say never, but probably. The I-formation will always be available in football. Power running is super important. NFL teams still do it, right? So that's why it's not going to be obsolete. But again, they use typically their H-back to become a fullback in that scenario. So to kind of just have a guy who's an old school fullback, you know, a John Allstott, that kind of guy, probably never again. Don't don't uh, mis- name Mike Allstott there. No, okay. Mike, why did I say John? Why do I do that? I, I don't, don't even know. know. Randomly, like names pop into my brain and they're wrong. But yeah, Mike You did a great job with that. With, that failed by me. I'm sorry. Basically, the only fullback of note in the league is... Kyle Juszczyk, who's very effective on the 49ers, but they are a little different than what a lot of teams are trying to do. So I don't know if it'll be obsolete forever, but it's certainly kind of dormant right now. And obviously, again, the 49ers and Shanahan, that's what Napier runs. So it's power running. They power run. Florida will power run more than virtually all college football teams because power running is hard to do. That's why teams don't like to do it. And it's really hard to do it at the same time that you also run wide zone which is what Shanahan does. It's almost kind of crazy that they run as much power as they do. It's two totally different blocking techniques. So again, get excited for Allen and I's offensive line breakdowns <laughs> next year because it's going to be a wild fiesta of goodness. If you're an offensive lineman, Florida, I think, is the school you're going to want to go to because it will directly prepare you for the pros. All right, Corey Arnold asked, as a Bucks fan, I've gotten to learn more about Tom Brady the last couple of years. Things people say about why he succeeds. And then when Dan Mullen makes comments about Anthony Richardson not being able to set the line correctly and stuff, I'm curious your thoughts on things that are on things other than just passing and scrambling that makes QBs like Brady successful, understanding protection and reading defenses, pocket awareness, et cetera. I've covered this extensively. Yeah. So maybe talk about like setting the line. Yeah. My YouTube film channel, et cetera. So quarterbacking 101 obviously is all about communication and coordination. That's where Tom Brady is the best ever to do it by far. And then secondly, it's about accuracy where Tom Brady is also super accurate. So you have to be able to diagnose what's going on, take the snap, diagnose what they've changed to delivered an accurate ball. All that has to happen very quickly. Dan Mullen, as we covered, kept making comments about Richardson, not being able to the line correctly. I did not see evidence of that on film. It wasn't there. I'll, I'll never know why he was saying it. You can typically see that pretty easily. He also made comments about limited reading. He was making full field reads. We proved it on video. So I don't, I just won't really ever understand that. We'll put that part to bed. Uh, but if you want to be a successful quarterback, or if, or if Richardson in this case wants to get better, then you know you have to continue to work on your craft. And it all starts with pre-snap. What do I see pre-snap and what does that mean? Who's my key defender? Where do my eyes go? 
And then it goes to post snap. Where did they shift to? Where's my hole? Where's my weakness? Where are my routes? What's my read progression? The nice thing about Napier's offense is it's actually very, very simple for quarterbacks because it features a lot of play action. And with play action, you get wide open receivers if your run game is good. And you also tend to only have three reads instead of five. And oftentimes your number one receiver is wide open. So a lot of these throws are actually going to be quite straightforward for Richardson. Um, so in general, you know, without going into the nuances of, of the craft of quarterbacking, it starts, like we said, with pre-snap, it moves to post-snap, and then it moves to accuracy. I think that Anthony Richardson has all three of those things. He's already put all those three of those things on film, which is why I've been so high on him. And I will never understand why Dan Mullen continued to make disparaging comments about what Richardson was doing. It just doesn't make any sense, especially given that Emery was horrific right. at those things, which made it even more of a head scratcher. It's one thing if Tom Brady was on Florida and in comes Richardson and you're saying, Hey, Richardson pales in comparison, how Tom's reading the field. Fine. I'll give you that. But given the alternative, it was almost ludicrous. that Those comments are being made. Right. That's why everyone felt like they were taking crazy pills. Cause certainly there are scenarios where Richardson is a young guy. who hasn't seen everything you could throw at him. He doesn't make the right protection calls. But the guy who was playing wasn't doing it either. So what are you telling us? And I think you said that really well. And it'll be interesting to see what um, Napier does with a guy like Richardson because he's never had anybody like that. You know, Louisiana, you know, if they get down, which they didn't do a lot, they were a little more limited, I would imagine, in what they could do with lining up like four wide receivers and asking their quarterback to make the kind of reads that let's say Kyle Trask was doing under Dan Mullen's system. So maybe we see a little more of that type of stuff once Richardson is in full swing because he's able to do it. Who knows? Maybe not. Maybe we're so successful with the other stuff that it doesn't require it, but it's another thing that he's able to do. He doesn't need wide open first read guys to be successful. Now again, that, is great if that's happening because your offense is scheming that thing open, but it doesn't have to be. If the defense is shutting that down, doesn't mean you're screwed. So that'll be interesting. Okay. Derek with maybe my favorite question. Hey dudes asked the same question last year. So we'll bring it around again. Speculate what player is most likely to win the Kestra. Ke- <laughs> Sorry here. Chester Kimber award of being lauded by GNFP while spending 80% of his time on the bench. I'm glad that you made me feel good for saying John Allstott by by, <laughs> by butchering my favorite player's name in Chester Kimbrough. Ch- Chester Kimbrough. It also warms my heart. There's a segment of Gator fans that know who Chester Kimbrough is, which just brings me so much joy. Perhaps one day he'll understand. How, I mean, you how mentioned him every many, week. How many people really supported him and loved him. Maybe he has no idea. I don't know. If you know Chester Kimbrough, please reach out and have him contact the show so he can receive On our love. show notes, it was like, Improvements. Improvements. Play, play, Chester. play Chester. So he should know the love that was received from this very analytical show. Uh, I want to say, and I really hope, that there is not anyone that we have to do. <laughs> That's a but good point. The obvious, there is a very obvious candidate here, for sure. And that's Trevez. Trevez Johnson would be the one that would be starting over Perkins. And Perkins would be the guy that that right now I would want to be the starting nickel. I think he's a million times better on film last year than Trevez was. And again, we'll look at film this year. But assuming the season starts and Trevez is number one and Perkins is number two, that will be the early favorite for that award. It's the nickelback um, that you just can't 
can't my, can't get knows? over it. It might be and neither it, of those guys. It could be someone else. But I mean, again, you're making me pick it right now, right. which is wildly early and crazy. But that's that's the carryover from last year that is like the super obvious candidate. But we'll find out. That's what's beautiful on film, right? Is I no one knew who Tyrone Hopper was aside from a high level recruit until all of a sudden he gets in on the game and we come on the podcast and say this dude should be our starting linebacker. And he perceived to get like three snaps a game at the end of the game, you know, for multiple games in a row. So we'll find out. That's why the film is great. We will start to see guys on film. And if we see him flash, we'll mention it. And again, I hope, I hope, and I think Napier hopes for sure that you don't bench a guy uh, over another guy, you know, when he's your better and more productive player, which Mullen seemed to be especially skilled at. <laughs> yeah, that was like a hallmark of his his legacy here. Yeah, you don't want it to be that, right? If we're heading into the Mullen year again, we probably would have five guys ready to like toss out there. Uh, I think there might be somebody at receiver that we do we want to see more of, whether that's Burke or somebody like that, or m- maybe with trading at safety, if he wins the job, that there's a ton of guys who would be behind him that you're like, I really want to see more of this guy and what might happen. Um, but I think hopefully I'll we'll be able to say, well, it seems like Napier's playing the best guy. Even if this guy's not perfect, the next guy is also when he gets in the game isn't any better. That that's what you would hope for. Or maybe everyone's really great and and it doesn't matter who's in there. Uh but we'll see. We'll see. All right, let's look at Napier and coaching. Okay. So Franklin Thrasher the third asks if there is there anything that Coach Napier's passed. Uh, gives you hope that he'll be open to changing his offense is he, if he needs to change his run-pass ratio. So I think obviously a lot of a lot of Gator fans are worried. They're worried about this run-pass ratio. We chronicled it. I chronicled it pretty heavily on, on the offense breakdown on YouTube. Um, he is going to run the ball more than he passes it for sure, but he's also going to throw the ball vertically a lot. So there's a lot of airing it out that goes on. He continues by saying that Mullen obviously shocked us all by moving to a lot of four and five wide and airing it out, given that he also had a heavily skewed run pass ratio towards run. But Franklin believed that Mullen did this because we couldn't run the ball consistently, which was largely obviously true. So your thoughts on this is interesting how he couches this with hope. So it sounds like, of course, you know, he's kind of like me with how much I love the air rate. I want to pass the ball all the time. Hope that maybe Napier would change his offense if it was struggling to work. What are your thoughts there? I would have a lot of hope because I don't think of Napier as an ideal ideologue that like he's not Mike Leach who's going to run the air raid until you fire him. You have to like, he's going to be buried with his air raid playbook, right? Um, or some old school guy. There's not a lot of these guys who are like, I'm going to run the ball. No matter what, run it, run it, run it. And guess what? If it doesn't work, I don't care because we're playing big boy football here. I think Napier will do what works. He seems to be tactical enough and humble enough to to switch. This is even why I didn't really even think of him as an offensive play caller because that's not how people talk about him. doesn't mean he can't do it well, but he doesn't come from like this tree. And that's what he's known for is his offense. It's, um, so I think he would be fine abandoning lots of elements of it in favor of something that's working better. That seems to be his MO. So Kyle Shanahan, again, is generally regarded as a top three offensive mind in all of pro football, and he runs almost the exact same system. With that being said, what you said is true. You know, in my professional life as an investor, I have a fiduciary firm, and what I will say to all of my clients is my job as a fiduciary is to use the best investment strategy that data and evidence say exists. And here's the one we use now. 
And if five years from now, the data comes out and says there's a better strategy, I will use that. I think Napier is the same way, which is what you said. He's not Mike Leach. Mike Leach is like, listen, Air Raid's the best and I'm going to run it. Even when I should have power run, I should do other things. I don't care. I'm an Air Raid disciple. and That's all I'm going to run. And it's sort of a hammer that works for everything. Whereas Napier is like, I want to have 20 different tools. I think my base tool is the wide zone and the inside zone. That's my base tool. I'm going to use it. I believe in it. And then I'm going to tweak things here and there. Uh, but that's my identity in general. And then I will create stuff around it. Um, so I don't think you're going to see him all of a sudden go to air raid. But I think in his right. playbook, he'll take concepts that work. He'll take air raid passing concepts when he goes four wide or five wide. He'll run four verticals when he gets teams running a, a certain cover three set. Right? He'll take those ideas. Uh, and that's what you want to be. It's very tactical. Right. That's what you want to be as an offense. That's ideal. And I think he'll look at multiple concepts and in theory that is timeless because you know who else is tactical and doesn't have a defensive identity is nick saban he doesn't have an identity he's known for multiple concepts he's invented over time but he's invented them because football has changed and he keeps inventing new ones and so i think napier wants to be the same way well that's what i mentioned about you know richardson and going four wide if you're playing a top level team like bama and they are doing something that is bricking your wide zone I don't think you'll see us continue to run that all game. That they will try to do something else that will be more effective against what they're rolling out there. And there won't be a stubbornness to that. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but that's my intuition. Yeah, I love it. Same thing, Bill Belichick, right? We've talked about this before. What is his offensive identity? Whatever you should do to beat the other team, mm-hmm. which is why it will change so drastically from game to game. Uh, Mike Lowry of Project Management. Sounds amazing. Uh, I know Tony. This being not Kadarius Tony, but yeah, not not Patrick Tony, which is which is always very confusing, right? So Patrick Tony, new defensive coordinator, likes to simulate a lot of pressures. Again, covered that in the YouTube channel. Go take a look if you want to learn about simulated versus creepers versus other great terminology from football. That's fun. I, I love hearing about creepers. Creepers, right? Uh, simulate a lot of pressures from different packages that all look the same. Do you think this will work in our favor next year? Uh, obviously, keeping in mind that we have a lot of experienced uh, DBs on defense as well as quarterbacks coming back to play in the SEC. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think anything you can do to confuse a, a high-level quarterback, you want to do. Because if you're just rolling out vanilla stuff, he's going to be able to pick you apart, as we've seen. So I don't know like simulated pressures, the percentage that you need to run or would be ideal to run to confuse a modern quarterback. That's outside of my probably scope of knowledge at this point. But... I do think what you know the reason we want to answer this question is Patrick Tony will I think do what he thinks will work best in the specific situation. So just like Coach Napier seems to be very tactical and will do whatever it takes to win the game, is not married to a system. If simulated pressures are not working, it's not like, hey, I my thing is simulated pressure, so you're gonna see those all game. It's not a Todd Grantham, this is what we roll out there no matter what, in every situation all the time. Um, so I think that's what I would say about this. Any, any kind of angle on this with experienced QBs? First, can we get an amen for not having to mention Todd, <laughs> Todd Grant anymore? Oh man, that feels good. It does. Uh, secondly, secondly, well said, uh, he's not going to roll out simulated pressures or creepers unless he should. And I'll give you a simple example. I actually used the game against app state as my case study on, on, Tony, and I could have used lots of other film. I've watched plenty of other games where he used simulated pressures. He didn't use a single simulated pressure against App State. Didn't do it. Use some creepers. Use some other stuff. 
against other teams. He uses a lot of simulated pressures. So Tony is the is the king of modern football in that he's super tactical. And I love that. And what you said is exactly right. It's going to be totally catered towards what that quarterback has struggled with on film using stats and analytics. And then during the game, if he happens to be going against the analytics, if he's outperforming the quarterback that is outperforming what you thought he would do, I'll try different stuff. And those are all the tools you need. Um, so experienced quarterbacks will all have weaknesses. They all do. And the goal of a defensive coordinator is to figure out what looks they don't like. And the answer quite simply is simulated pressures and creepers work because they add a, a small delay in your read. And you're trying to just hold the quarterback off for just enough by mixing up one or two or three variables that by the time he does make his read, your pressure has gotten there. And it does so safely. You're not having, this is not Madden where you bring eight guys in a blitz, right? And you expose yourself to where if the blitz doesn't get home, you're dead. A lot of times, even if you don't get home there, you're still playing the same coverage numbers you would have had anyway. So it's not nearly as risky, but it can be very effective even against veteran quarterbacks, which is why you see the NFL use these concepts all the time. So we keep mentioning creepers. If you haven't watched James's uh, video breakdown of Tony's defensive play calls in that App State Louisiana game, I would definitely recommend watching it over the summer to get a feel for what he's done in the past and what he's likely to do at Florida. It's really well done, and you'll get to hear him say creepers a bunch. Yeah, thank you. And I won't cover it here because it's just so much easier to see this visually than it is for me to describe it to you. Uh, so, and of course, we'll be talking about it a lot this season. So definitely prime yourself with that. So yeah, if you're thinking guys like peeping through the window, that's not the kind of creeper we're talking about. We're talking about defensive alignments. Definitely. They're peeping through different gaps on uh, <laughs> on the on the offensive line. All right, Colin Chambers asks us, Patrick, Tony mentioned in a press conference that Napier is able to diagnose and help with issues on his defense. He stated that other offensive minds he's coached alongside with were not able to do this. So Colin's question is, if being an offensive mind involved diagnosing defenses and exploiting weaknesses, why would some offensive coaches not be able to point out defensive issues? That's a great question, and I don't know why it wouldn't work the other way. Maybe you can respond to that. It seems like it would, and that if you're an offensive coach who can't put yourself in the defensive coordinator's shoes, then that might be problematic. What do you think? Uh, you answered this question earlier when you went to the hard system mm. offensive identity and play caller guys. So one of the problems in life with being a hard system anything where you're not thinking tactically, but you only think strategically, is you start to kind of develop like a a rule for everything, which can be helpful. So, for example, in the air raid system, you have a beater for cover two, cover three, cover four, cover one, cover zero. You have a play you like or you go to and you create all these rules. We'll do this. If they did this, we'll do that. You know, right? All this game theory stuff, which is excellent. But oftentimes, you know the defense's sort of rules to a certain extent, so, for example, in the air raid, if a team plays cover three and they're going to drop their two corners back and they're not going to drop their linebackers back, then you can run four verticals and you just pick which seam you want to hit. It's like the most basic air raid play. But if you don't know team's defensive rules, for example, maybe the corner is going to pass off here, the linebacker passes off there, they pattern match there, they do this stuff there, then you can sort of get very static and, and your original like idea that won the day now as a counter and you don't really know what the counter is. And this can happen 10, 12, 15 iterations of, of defensive design later, where all of a sudden you're still looking at your playbook. Well, they're in cover three, I'm going to run this play, but it's not working. And perhaps you don't really know why, because you've sort of, you're anchored to your play. And you talked about this earlier, like we're going to run the football because running football is our identity, right? And you're thinking, okay, well, great. Well, this team is kind of like 
built to stop your run. You have to do something else. So I think the answer is that you should. The answer is you should. As an offensive coach at the top level, you should absolutely be able to point out every defensive issue, much like Tony tries to learn everything about the offense. He wants to know, how is the offense attacking my pattern match? How are they attacking my corner if I line up with outside leverage versus inside leverage? What if they move him into motion? What if I wind up with this person? What? That's he, he lives and breathes and eats that stuff up, and you should. The best coaches do that. Uh, to the question of like, how many coaches do this? The answer is not many. Because as Nick Saban says, most people in life truly don't want to be excellent. And to be excellent requires an extraordinary amount of extra work. Something my dad said to me when I was younger, Alan, rang true in my own life. You know, he would, he would talk about the extra effort it took to get, you know, an A or an A plus, right? And you can get an A in elementary school or middle school relatively easily. Get to college, getting an A might be incrementally harder. But that incrementally harder is hard enough because you're already putting a lot of work in that a lot of people just don't really want to do it. Like, I've, I've really got this grasp enough. I really don't want to put in that extra amount of work. Maybe there's five other things I'd like to do. And I think that's what happens to people. And in football, I think what happens is some of these coaches just aren't organized enough to be able to keep up with the innovation because they have 600 things going on. And to continually innovate requires free time and creativity and thought and discipline to look at what the other side is doing and to learn. So that's kind of a long answer to that. But the layup answer is yes, you should obviously be looking 360 at what the defense is doing and what the offense is doing and how teams are trying to stop you if you want to be the best. Mark Lewis asks, many teams call a handful of plays before the game starts for the first series. Given what we know about Napier's offense and with some projections on personnel, what would some of the plays you would like to call early on be, Alan? I want to call all the good ones. No, I think this is, you know, pretty standard operating procedure that most staffs will script the first few plays and then you have to get into responding to what the other team is doing. Um, I I think for me, this is entirely about what I think that they're going to do immediately. What are, what are plays that are going to give me information about what they're going to do? And so you run some testers to see, again, you, you don't want like, they're not dummy plays, but you don't necessarily know, um, or you do know what they're going to tend to start off doing. And maybe you can get some cheap points if you're running against a somebody who always starts off the same way. Well, these plays should work. Maybe we'll steal a touchdown here. Um, so it would be entirely about what they're doing to, to stop what we're doing and what I think would counteract that. That's a great, great answer. Game theory heavily comes into play here. Stats do what you see on film, matchups that you like, tendencies of how teams defend certain formations, certain plays, all that stuff comes in. So answer the answer is what Alan said. You want it to be very tactical. Uh, I think the bedrock, of course, as you've heard us say a lot of Billy Napier's offense is the wide zone run. And in the wide zone run, you're, you're clearly wanting to see how teams choose to handle that. How do they try to stop it? How do they stop your 12 personnel, which is going to be your one running back, two tight ends, kind of the the, the system you most like to run out of. Uh, but that's going to be very game plan specific. So uh, the calls you want to call are the good ones, which Alan says, which to me are the ones that you think will yield the highest expected value. And you heard us talk a lot about this during Mullen's time. We'd enter into a game against a certain team and say, look, against this team, we should be seeing a lot of this. This is the highest expected value based upon film. And next week, it could be something very different. And so I'd expect the same thing for Napier. I think projected plays 
they've never been a thing I like to do. Uh, I think every play caller has certain plays you know you like against certain looks, but if you script plays, oftentimes you get yourself too stuck in when there's a much better opportunity that presents itself. So I think you'd rather keep yourself tactically flexible, more dynamic. But again, you have ideas, plays you might like, things you see you know you'll go to, and you want those to be called early and often. As soon as you see something you like that yields a big play, you should hit that. There's no reason to, to run something else because it's, quote, early in the game. Yeah, and I would think you would see a wide zone run somewhere on the first drive if it goes more than a couple of plays just because you would want to see what they're doing to it unless they're doing something very strange that would tell you that wouldn't be effective um, because I think you want to see your bread and butter out there. And again, I, I the scripting is interesting because it can provide an advantage if you, the information is static, but you can also go, man, what they put on the field we just ran into a buzzsaw because we were, you know, we were addicted to our script, and that's where preparation. I think if you get too locked into it, can be a negative, and it's hard to be that adaptable all the time. Uh, the best ones are able to do it, right? But the reason scripting is good is because it gives you a first mover advantage theoretically, and it relaxes your team because you've run those plays a bunch right. of practice. And one thing to to always take note of: Vince Lombardi was not wrong when he said that football is largely, in his case, entirely about execution, right? He'd run very few plays to Tom Landry's like 600-page playbook. Uh, and he famously beat Tom Tom Landry a lot running the same play. In the NFL, it's not different. The NFL, most teams run very similar plays. It's about execution and timing of those plays. Subtle confusion here and there. And so you never, ever want to not use your best stuff against a team, even if on paper you think they can stop it, they'll have to prove they can stop it. That's what you mentioned with the wide zone run is that's your bread and butter. It's what you practice executing the most on. You want to prove a team can stop your best stuff before you move to your secondary stuff. And that's important when it comes to play calling as well. Well, as always, we are sponsored by BetUS. And I shouldn't say as always, but this past season, as always, we've been sponsored by BetUS. And of course, sports betting season is year-round in full swing all the time. You can sign up visiting BetUS.com. You can use our promo code GNATION125 or GNATION200 to get a big fat bonus on your entry. Either 125% or 150% of what you sign up for will be placed into your account as a bonus courtesy of the Gator Nation Football Podcast. And if you sign up using one of our codes, you are directly supporting the show as we get a hundo bomb for each one of you that signs up. So that is pretty glorious. So visit betus.com today and perhaps make a few wagers on the Blue Blood Final Four, which is going to be quite entertaining this upcoming weekend. All right, Alan, it's time for you to take us back to the future. Will do. Okay. Robert Hurd wants to know if we see any games next season as must wins, either in terms of a successful season or to set the tone for the beginning of Napier's tenure here. It's hard to answer these ahead of time because must wins may arise depending on situations and what's going on off the top of my head. The, the one that the ones that come most readily to mind are the ones where you're looking at teams in similar situations. So Tennessee, Florida State, kind of in the midst of a identity rebuild, trying to find their way. You don't want to lose to those teams. You know, you lose to the A&Ms, the Bamas, the Georgias, fine. We're not there yet, right? 
Uh, you don't want to lose to, I think, those kind of teams. So those two stick out to me. Tennessee, a team I think is on the upswing. And then Florida State, a team who who knows where they are. But I think those are the two quick ones that I would say in games you don't want to drop. That's a really interesting way to think about it. And as you said, if you lose a couple in a row, all of a sudden a game shifts categories. Or if you start off 6-0, and then all of a sudden that seventh game is probably not must win. I The one I would circle early on is a home game, September 10th, is Kentucky. They're a dangerous team. But I think if you're going to be a successful program, like I think a good year for Florida, ultimately, you would want to finish second in the SEC at least. You're going to have to beat Kentucky. You're going to have to beat Tennessee. That Tennessee's on the road. That Kentucky game is at home. It's early. It's your second game. That Utah game, the first game, who knows? That's a really tough ass. They're a really physical team up front. I don't think Florida can't win that game, but no one would be shocked to see Florida lose that game. But if you start off 0-2, not like you can't climb out of that, but that is not the way you want to start your career at Florida, especially for the casual fan who's like, what? We're losing? We lost to Utah, and now we lost to Kentucky? It just creates unnecessary noise in the system. So I think that that one is compelling because I think the Florida fan base still expects to beat Kentucky every year, no matter what. Yeah, make no mistake about it. Napier is being done no favors with that opening game against a very good Utah team. That's going to be Whew. tough, tough sledding there. Okay. Gustavo, simple question from him. Over under 10 wins, what would you take right now? I'm going to save this one for when we, this is because we do this one directly, obviously. Right. I, I don't want to, I don't want to answer it uh, right now with the schedule. It's a great question, obviously. So I hate, I hate to be the person on a mailbag that says, we're going to save that one, but I'm going to save it. I'm not ready to answer it yet. Yeah. I would say that I'm reserving the right to change my mind here like 15 times. The under is going to be tempting. I'll just tease it there. Ooh. I don't think we're looking at a, the way the schedule breakdowns, you're like, you would not set that over under any higher, certainly. No, I mean, Vegas, I mean, spoiler alert right now, over under wins only deal with the regular season, no mm-hmm. postseason, no SEC championship game, et cetera. I mean, Vegas is probably going to put us at eight. So the obvious answer is you take under if someone gives you 10. But we'll wait and see. Yeah. We'll see what we'll we look like in fall. We'll talk about what the matchups look like. There's a lot of There's a lot of things that can happen between now and then before that becomes definitive. All right. A different way of looking at this question here. Anthony Gallo asks, what is an acceptable record for us this season? And what are things we should look for that show we as a program are headed in the right direction, specifically outside of recruiting? This is a fun question, Anthony, because this is sort of the bedrock of our of our podcast in reality. Uh, this is kind of why the podcast started. It's like, how do you evaluate your program? Like, how do we inform our listeners about what's good, bad, or indifferent beyond just the record? And one thing we've said from the very first year we started this up during the McElwain era was that the record does not tell you everything. In fact, oftentimes it, it lies to you like it did uh, in the Muschamp period with that great season that we had. So what you look for is is not necessarily the overall win-loss record, but the style of the program. Do you get better each week? That's step one. Does your team get better every single week? Are they putting better things on film? Are they cleaning up mistakes? Are they playing better players? That That's significant. And two, are you becoming more competitive as the season goes on in the right way? Are you mastering your core concepts? Um, are you are you building your team camaraderie in a way that makes sense? Or are people unified rather than fractured? Are you seeing things that indicate that success is around the corner, even if win-loss record success is not here 
right now. And so I think those are the things that I know I and Alan will be looking for the most are those style signs, if you will, because style signs do lead to what is most likely going to happen in the future, which I think is why on this podcast, we've been rather accurate at predicting what's going to happen to these regimes is we'll start to see, hey, we're winning games, but this is not the right way to win games. There are issues that are going to show up. And so you'd like to not see those kind of issues. And you could easily win 10 games and have a ton of issues that lead to a snowball effect in future years. And you can win six games, but actually feel great about how your style is going. I think at Florida, we've talked about this before, to, to not win at least six games, probably really seven, is entirely unacceptable under any way, shape, or form, unless like half the roster gets wildly injured. You really just are better than everyone you're playing, and a better football coach should win those games. Yeah, that's interesting because not all records and schedules and years are created equal, right? When you look at this particular schedule, there's a lot of good teams on it, and there's a lot of question marks, right? The teams that could be good could be bad. So reserving the right to change this, I would say anything under eight wins is going to be disappointing, most likely, right? If you're at seven, you know what? You could feel bad about good about that, but you probably won't. Eight and four still probably feels like, man, we took some lumps that year because we are Florida, right? There's not a lot of gimmies here on the schedule. There's really only probably two that you could say we will win this game. That's USF and Vanderbilt, right? And even Vandy, you know, it's on the road. They can get a wild hair, right? But as far as signposts, right? Do the things we're doing make sense? Tactically, are we doing what we need to do? Does it seem like we're, you know, in the Ty Grantham era again where, man, we keep rolling out the same stupid stuff over and over again and it doesn't look like we know what we're doing? Um, and do the players seem to be improving, as James said? Does it seem like as the year goes along, especially under your first-year head coach, is their knowledge base and their execution level increasing, right? And how are you against the best teams, right? So you could get beat by Utah by, you know, 17 and then play A&M later on in the year close. And you would say, okay, that's a an improvement, even though both those things are losses. Uh, and so style again, does it, does it look good? Does it effective? Does it seem like there's some movement going on in terms of improvement, both individually and corporately? All right. Colin Crable, another question here. A way far in the future question here from Colin. Who do you think will take over the starting QB after AR? Are they yet to be recruited? Well, I don't have Biff's Sports Almanac. So (laughs) unfortunately, I cannot tell you. I wish I could. I have no idea. Uh, I think what matters here to this question is you want to have a lot of talented quarterbacks in your quarterback room. And you always want to be shopping the transfer portal because you don't know when that guy is going to win you a national championship. Just look back over the past decade of teams that have won national titles and whether or not their quarterbacks actually started at that school initially. So that's my answer. I don't know. I have no idea. But constantly, as a coach, be looking out for the best quarterback talent you can bring into your program. Here's an interesting thing with a guy as young as Richardson, who I guess is not that young. He could leave after this year. But in terms of his starting 
you know, number of starts he's had. I would say generally, I would expect almost every QB that we ever recruit to not play for us. If we already have a QB in the system, because the likelihood of them transferring out is so high that if you recruit two guys, one of them is de facto going to leave unless there's some extreme circumstances or you end up with a Kyle Trask or something like that. And, you know, someone like Jalen Kidna might be that guy. He knew what he was walking into when he came to Florida. But yeah, so the most likely the guy isn't on the roster. He's either a transfer or a guy we recruit this next fall, especially with a coaching change. It doesn't mean like Del Rio or Kidna couldn't be the guy. There's nothing that disqualified them by any means, but that's the nature of the QB position here in 2022. All right, Gustavo wants to know, James, do you have an underrated player to make all SEC defense? Perkins would be the guy. I think Hello. we've yeah, right. I think we've highlighted him heavily as a guy on film who's not he's certainly not on any anyone else's radar. He's not going to show up on any teams, you know. Uh radars, I think. Most other Florida players, Dexter, obvious, right? We can start naming lots of obvious candidates. You could try to pick a linebacker or two that has basically not played at all, mm-hmm. whether you like Black or you like Wingo or someone else like that that no one knows, they're not necessarily underrated because they're young, talented guys who haven't played yet. So I, I think Perkins is a guy who at nickel, based upon what he's flashed, could be really, really good, and he could potentially be that good. It seems like on film, he struggled to know the playbook, and that may hold him back or may not. But I'll, I'll stick there with him. Um, that seems like the obvious candidate there. Yeah, I think you have to exclude Dexter, Cox, and Jason Marshall, even though Marshall like nationally isn't a known name, but those are guys who you're expecting to be the stars of your team. The linebacker is interesting. We don't even know who's going to shake out and be the starter there. Um, I'll say in the guy in Rashad Torrance, I think if the safety play improves as much as it could under a guy like Tony, that he could move into a position where he starts to get all SEC type you know, potential if, you know, our recognition, because let's say he ends up with like five interceptions or something like that. One of those counting stats that people make people take notice that that could be something, you know, where he go from a baseline of like solid starter to all SEC because he starts to get some buzz. But I think you're more likely to see it. If those three players I named, yeah, which are not underrated. but and, and Torrance is very highly thought of by us. He put a lot of great stuff on film for most of the year last year. All right. Abe Hamza spams us with a bunch of prediction questions here. Where do you think we'll rank in the recruiting rankings? What do you think will be our run pass percentage this season? Do you see us competing with UGA this season, or is that not attainable in year one? What do you think our win-loss record will be? Do you think we beat Utah in game one? He does, by the way. He says he's all over the place, but just wondering what our thoughts were. So, yeah, do you want to take? Yeah, let's all just these fi- in- I'll fire these quickly. So, okay. where do we rank? Uh, I think we're going to be tier two in recruiting, which would be huge. That's what we've been looking for. We've yet mm-hmm. to make it there. I think we'll get in a tier two, which means we could enter into. I could actually begin to tell you that I think we could compete for a national title. So that would probably result in like if you're going to put it in a. A top 10 so it doesn't mean it has to correlate but it will it will have to be at least top seven and it depends on how that shakes out with right. player distribution but right. it has to be at least top seven probably right around fifth most years if you look at it that way but we'll we'll keep you informed but yeah so somewhere in there again the great thing about the tiers is it 
you know, removes the illusion of like four, five, and six are the same because they have the same number in that tier. But yeah, I would say in tier two, in the top, around the top five, plus or minus one or two there, I think it'd be really hard to crack like the top three, but you want to be right there knocking on the door. And that would be, I think we're talking about successful. That's probably, it's weird, the ceiling and the floor in terms of what success would be. So that's a pretty tight window for him to squeeze into. Yeah, very tight. Uh, Run pass percentage. I think we're going to run probably 55% of the time and pass 45% of the time. And as I've said before, everyone who's listened to this podcast for years knows I love passing the football. It's my favorite thing, my favorite part of football. Uh, I also love vertical passing. And one of the major reasons why I'm perfectly on board with this kind of offense is although you run more than you pass, you vertically pass a lot. This is not a power run offense with West Coast principles where you throw the ball four yards every time. That would, I would kill me. I'd be like, I'm done. I don't want this podcast anymore. So it, keep that in mind. But we're going to run the ball more than we will pass the ball. And we will see how Gator Nation handles that. That would be on trend. And I would, that would be my expectation. It doesn't mean that will be how it plays out. But I don't think you can really predict anything else at this point. So then looking at, do you see us competing with UGA this season, or is that not obtainable competing? Yeah, we can compete with UGA. UGA is going to have issues on offense, especially because, you know, that's just kind of what UGA does. It's not likely we're going to beat them this year, and that should not be the benchmark. Certainly not. Kirby's deep into that regime. He's riding a high of all highs, and Florida's now kind of just trying to return to that. Uh, but I would expect us to be competitive with them in ways that we not necessarily were always with Dan Mullen. And what I mean by that is that we should be tactically sound and maybe they beat us because they're better, but we should not be doing some of the egregious errors that we've done against Georgia in the past. I think, well, the expectation is definitely to be competitive. I mean, Georgia is turning over its entire defense. Offensively, they have a lot to replace. Um, they're still supremely talented so, I mean, Florida beat Georgia two years ago. It's not like we're on some, like, Michigan-level streak where we haven't come within 10 points in, like, 10 years or whatever um, with Ohio State. That was, sorry, Michigan and Ohio State until they broke through this year. Um, yeah, I think competitive should be the goal. It doesn't mean, like, the game doesn't slip away, end up losing by, like, 13 at the end. We're like, is that competitive or not? You know, you could kind of quibble with that. But I think certainly at that point of the year, Midway through the season, if you're not competitive with Georgia, that that's a bad sign outside some wacky circumstances. Yeah, for sure. Do you think we can beat Utah in game one? Absolutely. Of course we can. Look, if Anthony Richardson is anywhere near the guy that we think he is, then Florida could be competitive in any game. Agreed. Any game. Uh, so Florida's roster is far from perfect. We will have issues. We also have a lot of position groups to be very excited about, including what you need the most, which is a transcendent quarterback. So, of course we can. Do I think we will beat them? Yeah, it's going to depend a lot upon what the spring and then fall begins to look like for us. Utah is is maybe, maybe going to have their best team not under Urban Meyer uh, that they've had. And they're rolling right now. And they're on fire, and they're very, very good. So I think the expectation is that we don't win that game given where they are and how they played last year and who they return. I mean, this is a, I'm going to keep saying it's a very, very good Utah football. This is a top 10, maybe top seven, six football team. That's a real deal. And they're ready. And this is a huge game for them to play somebody like Florida from the East coast. And they're catching Florida at the exact right time, which is lucky for them. Yeah. And that's not going to be a game where you could like just out physical your opponent or be tougher than them when, you know, both teams are, 
less refined skill wise, they're going to be ready for this game. They they've been thinking about this game since they woke up from that you know bowl game. <laughs> they're man, they're really impressive. And would I pick Florida? I, that's a tough one, but I I agree with you. I do think we have the elements to win that game because anytime you start off with a baseline of who we expect Richardson to be, that gives you a shot. No doubt. All right, now we're in the other category. Marshall and Kathy Gallup ask that we discuss game theory and a topic of analytics on both of our new football and basketball coaches. Uh, Eric Fawcett has given some awesome examples of analytics for basketball, which there are tons of analytic stats in basketball, which I love. But they're not necessarily aware of anything beyond the occasional mention of what we talk about for football that perhaps he's saying or she's saying they haven't grasped this fully. Moneyball and baseball, obviously, is where Marshall and Kathy go to. Right, That's well-formulized. There's an entire book and a whole bunch of cult followers of that that makes plenty of sense. So essentially, where do we see the advance that these coaches may take at Florida? In this case, talking both Florida and basketball. We'll save basketball for later. We have basketball questions coming. And what suggestions might we have for someone to catch up and understanding? Let's focus on football analytics. And and it seems like, Alan, they're asking about advanced analytics in football. There's a ton of analytics in football. But if you're thinking money ball, you're thinking basketball, which is full of all sorts of advanced analytics, baseball, that football doesn't really have metrics necessarily uh, as deep. They do have some. Yeah, what you hear about in football is like, should you go for it on fourth down? Like the score differential about like, when should you go for two and things like that? That's where it's really taken hold and you've seen some changes, right? Uh, amongst even NFL coaches like Brandon Staley got both praised and criticized last year as the coach of the Chargers for some of the stuff he did. Um, football is really hard because it changes so quickly and your personnel changes so quickly and you run out so many different things. I I think what every modern coach is going to look at is some of the stats about you know how often teams are in certain alignments and what are they doing in those alignments like I think that data is readily available so that you if you're not looking at the data about how often teams do certain things I think that's pretty silly at this point um the staff the stat we like to look at last year was like <laughs> what's his percentage throwing right and left you know, which either is partly real or partly not. You know, that was always a fun one. I don't have a great analytics book to recommend or thing to read or video to watch. Do you have anything, James? Well, I think what you want to do is you can Google, you can start just Googling like football analytics and give you an idea of what's there. Uh, some of the advanced analytic concepts that came from directly from Moneyball. So if you think of a baseball one, it's wins above replacement, right? Or war, which is sort of the gold standard of, of Moneyball. And that's where the idea came from is if I can take a first baseman who's a replacement level and pay him a third of what I would pay a guy who gets me one more win per season, I should do that. And I should try to invest in players to get me three to six more wins per year. And if I can do that at nine different positions, all of a sudden I've gotten 15, 20 more wins and I'm a playoff team, right? And that's what Billy Bean did, obviously. In football, it's harder and they have those stats. They don't work as well uh, for a variety of reasons, but you obviously have looks uh, across the board. You can look at defensive value above replacement, offensive value above replacement. You can look at secondary units 
a, like there's luck factors they throw in there. So like, is your secondary lucky with a batted ball or is it good because in the right position, was it a bad quarterback throw in general, trying to kind of isolate these variables. You can look at DB numbers and catch rate, um, target rate, target share. These are all stats that are not advanced because they're not doing what like a war does, or it's not a basketball scenario where you're going to get like adjusted offensive efficiency based upon a variety of things. Football is hard because there's 11 guys in the field, number one. Whereas baseball, you have you have nine guys in the field, but it's actually highly individualized. It's very really one pitcher versus right, right. Uh, but football is not. like Everything is very – it takes all 11 guys to run a single play at the same time. So it's like, okay, well, if you isolate a DB and it looks like this DB's got XYZ advanced stat, how useful is that to you in evaluating whether or not you want to draft that DB? So you can just kind of look at a simple success metric like that DB in man, how well does he do when you get a percentage? That's not an advanced stat. That's just a stat. So with football, they do exist. There are not very many of them. They are not highly used by NFL teams yet. Uh, but stats that used to not be that important and now are, are things obviously like target share, side of the field you want to throw the ball to, deep passing target rate, right? Uh, adjusted offensive efficiency. If you look at per play, you know, how often are they running a certain play? How successful are they with it? What I think you can expect, and this is where your question is going from the football team, is what can you expect from them? You can expect them to scour all the analytics every single game before they play their opponent to know what their tendencies are. So how successful are they to each train to the field? How often do they throw deep? How often do they throw out of a certain play action set versus an eye formation versus spread? How often do they go empty? Who do they attack most? Who's number one receiver? How many targets do they get? All that kind of stuff, they're going to know. And they're going to build their game plans upon that. And that is most likely what is going to be the case. So it's not going to be... Uh, plus minus in basketball adjusted offensive efficiency and defensive efficiency. It's not going to be a war in in baseball where I'm you know I'm going to take this second baseman because he's got a you know a value of five above replacement and a different guy. You can't do that with high school athletes coming into college football. So it's more going to be those game stats that they take and they scour and use. Right. It's it's about tendencies and what probabilities of of things. So if you're looking at for people, I just thought about this who are looking at data, Bill Connolly at ESPN, and then for the Gators. Um, David Wonderlich, who's a guy I like to read, even though I'm not a stat heavy person, there'd be some people to look at. And then they're looking at different stuff than what all of James just described um, in terms of like game plan, plan specific, but they're looking at the entirety of like college football in some sense. And for David um, more, more so at the Gators. All right, let's look at what Richie Legler asked, which is not Gator related. What are your thoughts and opinions on the revival of the USFL, which is obviously a spring tackle football league and why do you think spring pro flag football leagues have such difficulty finding success or just regular football leagues not even flag football leagues that's right what do you think uh well two things two probably obstacles and these are just obvious but one it's so clearly a secondary like lower level division thing and college football is different because it's tied to things that people love and represent them and it's just hard starting something new honestly with such an established behemoth like the nfl and i think also people are creatures of habit with a calendar in that you know watching football in the spring is not something they're used to doing that's time for basketball and baseball and yeah i think we like our rhythms and our calendars so that's that's something you're fighting yeah i think that it just comes down to to quality of the product Right. And so here's the thing in, in a world, take the NFL away and take all the NFL players away. They don't exist anymore. Then the USFL is the best football you can watch. So that becomes like what your eyeballs are used to seeing. Right. 
But if you're used to watching Pat Mahomes and Tom Brady and all these guys play and you turn on the USFL, it's just not as good. These guys are excellent football players. They're really good. But almost none of these guys can actually make an NFL team as a starter. Some of those guys will actually make an NFL team, right? Some of the guys on my own flag football roster came from those spring leagues and they made it into the NFL, but none of them are starters. They've found a spot on special teams or something else. So it's just the quality is not as high. And eventually most people watch pro sports because it, each year it gets better. It's interesting. I mean, it theoretically gets better, right? Town gets better, play gets better. If you watch the NBA uh, from today versus 20 years ago, you could argue the NBA heyday, of course, was 20 or 30 years ago, right? Uh, but you can't argue that the players are more skilled today in general. They're doing more skillful things. And so they kind of wow you with what is going on and what's happening. And so I think in the USL, the USFL, the wow factor is not there. Secondarily, history matters. You know, if you live in Green Bay, you've had a team there forever. Your grandfather rooted for them. Your dad rooted for them. You root for them. There's a legacy value there. USFL team starts up brand new and the city has to attach itself to it. And that takes time. It takes a lot of time. You've seen this with MLS and soccer. They've finally gotten adhesion. And now you have, you know, Seattle loves their soccer team. Orlando loves their soccer team. That takes a lot of time. People were not going to Orlando soccer games for many, many, many years. They've been trying to launch those leagues for 40 years, right? So it's just really hard to launch a pro sporting league in general. And it's especially hard when your league is not the premier talent league in your country. So I think for that reason, you're going to continue to find headwinds for those leagues to make money. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Christian asks, what's your favorite offensive play design? Personally, he loves the slot fade, which is an immensely great play. That is a great play. I mean, my default would just be something about four verts, you know, (laughs) something downfield. I do love when coaches get really creative at slipping the tight end into space or off-tendency things. I think that's uh, that's a place where you can get really creative and surprise people and go off-tendency. So when that works, it's usually like, wow, that was a great play call. And you can do that in a variety of different ways. Yeah, my my favorite play is definitely the four verts, and and that's that's an air raid answer. But it's also true. One, four verticals seems so stupid. Like if you played Madden, you just think <laughs> I'm sending my four guys on a go out. But the reality is four verts creates so much pressure for a defense, especially yeah. because you can very easily turn four verts into a slot fade. You can you can so quickly alter its concepts into something that that's really dynamic. Um, I also love smash concepts. I think a smash is, is, is such a timeless and elegant football concept. A smash obviously is where your outside receiver is going to run a hitch route between six and eight yards and your slot receiver is going to run a corner route and you're high lowing the corner. It's, it's great. If football teams that want to play cover three, cover one, uh, it's a, it's a beater against a lot of modern, modern defenses. And then, uh, lastly, 
Uh, I love teams don't often run cover two anymore, but I mean, I love a route. It's called like a trail stem, basically where you'll have your slot receiver and your wide receiver kind of both get in each other's wake. If you will, the first receiver will break to the corner. Second receiver breaks to the post and you're two on one in a safety. Uh, that's an incredibly great cover two beater, especially because of the stem. It causes pattern matching issues. It's very, very dynamic. Gives your quarterback an easy dual high read. Um, so, you know, there's so many you could go with, but football is fun in large part because of play design on both offense and defense. It's like you're playing this chess game on a board and you're drawing stuff up and moving people around. It's really, really, if you like football, obviously you love that kind of stuff. All right, Michael uh, Moscone asks, and James that reveals a Dolphins fan, which is true, like Michael. Great, Mike, you and I are in this together. What are my thoughts and our thoughts, Alan, as you're a huge NFL fan, on McDaniel as the new coach who comes from San Francisco, sort of a whiz kid kind of analytical guy any similarities to the scheme that napier uses yes he comes directly from shanahan's system as we've talked about so he and napier will be very very similar he says this is michael that the blocking and run concepts are similar so i think the simple answer to this one michael is that yeah shanahan napier and now mcdaniel they could all sit in a room and i think that their visions are like 96 percent aligned and Napier is based a lot of his concepts off of Shanahan. There is no doubt about it. And you know, you're pretty out on Tua as the quarterback. But that I think true. this could be an offense he could be successful in. So if you can get stuff out of Jimmy Garoppolo, I think you can also be successful with Tua, even though they're, they're different kinds of QBs that a run or heavy oriented scheme could provide a minimal level of success doesn't mean that you keep to it long-term, but I think he's an interesting guy to bring in. Well, and if you want to see the meta blueprint for what a guy like Shanahan or McDaniel or Napier would want to do, it's have Tyreek Hill, who's a super burner and Jalen Waddle, who's one of the best underneath receivers in the NFL. That's what you want because you can run 12 personnel. You two, your two receivers are out there and you've got a guy who can hit to the top off any coverage. And you've got a basically an uncoverable one-on-one receiver underneath. And then you're going to buy yourself time with max protect and play action. And Gusecki, who's a guy who can have the tight end position. Who can can either block or make plays. And that is why you're seeing the modern NFL. It's very opposite of the spread offense, which is very interesting. Alan, I love the spread offense, but I like components of it. Passing wise, Sean McVay runs a bunch system which is really based upon the fact that it's very, very hard to get your defensive concepts correct, but he's, he's bunching up. And then you get this system, which is 12 personnel, which was run in the NFL in the 1970s, but not the way it's being run today. So interesting stuff, how football recycles ideas and then modernizes it. All right, I'm going to read the next one here. From Bobby Boucher, what is the spread in a James versus Danny Werfel singles pickleball match to 11? It's a great question because neither Danny nor I play a lot of singles pickleball and Danny's coming in town this week to play pickleball. So perhaps we'll have to like put this on YouTube and uh, record it. Right. Set the line. Uh, (laughs) I really don't know. We just don't play singles. Uh, Danny's great at pickleball. He's fantastic. Really, a a really accurate player, solid player. But I would like to think that I'm probably winning that match like 11, seven. I think he gets seven and he gets seven because seven's his number. He has to get seven. All right, right? Danny, if you're listening currently, I'm going to go 11, seven. He's going to hear about this and he's going to be, if you can beat that number, I think, you know, you could be successful. It's going to happen for sure. That's uh, (laughs) that's going to come back to haunt me. All right. Dean Zobanakis asked, uh, what he'd like to hear is our take on the best and worst offensive play caller, including the likes of Mullen 
uh, in our lifetime. And he graduated in 2013, so his lifetime is different than our lifetime. But who is the best and worst play caller for Florida that you have personally been able to observe? I wish I had taken more time to think about this. This this one got put in right at the end here. Uh, I mean, Prime Spurrier was majestic. And I don't know if you can really top that. Um, Dan Mullen as a play caller, I think we talked about how he was really quality, I think especially in this last iteration you know, there's some moments where the offense was really stellar under Kyle Trask. And even with certain limitation along the offensive line around the ball, that there was some things to really value. So I think he almost has to default into second place there um, because he's there's not really a lot to choose from in our lifetimes. Uh, yeah, just, Steve, Steve Spurrier. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, a, that's one of the best play callers of all time. Yeah. Um, not just as a play designer, which he's great at, but he he was a great play caller. And if you didn't say Steve Spurrier and you've been a Gator fan for a hundred years, I think I would have to say, "What's wrong with you?" He's, Has to he's be. the answer there. Now, the worst one, yeah, the worst, the worst one's one, what I wanted one, to think there's, about. There's some candidates. This is a fight for the worst. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, so the Must Champ era, it's hard to divorce him from his play, play callers, but. Man, I don't want to throw old Kurt Roper under the bus, but no, here it is. It's got to be. Oh my gosh, why am I blanking on his name? Uh, Steve Adazio. Yeah. To watch you, you, that, you erased it from your memory. To watch that 2009 team was just an exercise in futility with all the talent and with how mediocre that team was. It was infuriating. Yeah, Adazio is definitely the pick, but there's there's a lot. I mean, look, let's be real. There's a lot of candidates for this. If you start going after the Urban Meyer era, um, let's let's just start in the Zook era. Actually, the offense was fine. It was fine. Multiple guys in there, fine. I mean, no one that goes into the worst category. And then Urban Meyer, you get Adazio, who's probably the leading candidate. Then you go into Muschamp, and you know you you get. You get some guys, and then most notably, you get you get a guy that is right there. I think you know for the worst towards the end of that tenure, and and I I don't even know if I can bring myself to mention his name because when you when you went to Adazio, I was thinking, well, it's either him or it's this particular guy, and I'm trying to think of who drove me more crazy, whether it was you know Adazio or the name who should not be mentioned, and and as I think about it. It's still Adazio. I was I was like beside myself with anger and frustration during the Adazio years. I mean, it, year. I mean, it was it was like the worst thing I could experience. Like we were driving a Ferrari and we were going like four miles an hour and intentionally Indeed. limiting ourselves to, you know, stopping stopping for gas every five miles and like never letting it out. Uh, so, all right. So for those who don't know, who should not be named, do you want to name him? I I will I will name him. It's Doug Nussmeyer. And obviously he was there with McIlwain, not Muschamp. We led into that with brutally bad offense leading into Doug Nussmeyer, who was who was brutal. But I think Adazio takes the king of bad offensive coordinators. And again, at Florida, it's, it's kind of sickening to think that we're a school known for offense, but we could spend a, a good amount of time having a roundtable discussion on multiple people. You mentioned Roper and others that factored into 
some tragically bad offensive play calling. <laughs> so good yeah, the, question. The ceiling for Adazio was so high. So high. And he was handed just so much talent. Man. Ugh. Brutal. Okay, you want to talk a little b-ball? I do want to talk before we end here. Yeah, b-ball is what we should talk about. A lot of big things happening. We take some time off on this podcast, and it's like the news does not sleep. Jeff Markham asks, "What do you think about the new basketball hire? How do you like uh, Golden?" I like him a lot. At least I like the idea of him. So I started to look for some basketball coaches. I think pre Mike White, but then definitely after Mike White announced he was leaving we'll get to we'll get to old mike white here in a second but let's focus on todd golden he he fits the profile of who i wanted to hire if there wasn't somebody out there who was like a big fish so let let's say somebody again billy donovan is a not good example but let's say somebody like billy donovan who had a lot of success in college and had been in nfl and nfl nba and was uh, looking to get back into college basketball, you basically, if you have the opportunity, you write him a blank check and say, what do you want? Come here. I don't know if we're the type of school that would do that anyway, but that's who I would want to go after. There wasn't really that guy out there. There wasn't like a big fish who was, you know, looming. And people started saying Scott Drew from Baylor, but I don't know where that came from at all. He just won a national championship at Baylor. Why would he leave to come to Florida? I mean, if he wanted to come, certainly you would hire him. But that that seemed like a weird rumor that we'd that we, I don't know if it was a rumor, just people saying we should try and hire him. But whatever. Uh, but I like Golden. I, I'm looking for a guy who is analytics oriented, right? And that is his reputation. He's a young ascending guy. He took a program at U at University of San Francisco, which has been not good for a long time and took them to the tournament lost in overtime, very competitive game. I like the way they play that both like stylistically and functionally, like in terms of what they're aiming at, you know, he has some question marks. Like, can he recruit at this level? Can he lead a big time program? But if you're not going to hire a big established guy, I'm less interested in a retread, a guy who's failed, like what I would not want to have done is like hire Mike White away from somebody else, right? So taking a shot at him seems as good as anywhere. He was on a list of short list of guys that would have been interested before I even knew like what he talked about because he just fit the general scope of type of guy you'd be interested in. So I mean, if I'm going to put a grade on it, a minus, I think for where Florida is right now. Okay, that's a lot to take in. I, this hire is so interesting to me for so many reasons. The guy that I really, really wanted, which I did not get to mention in the podcast, we didn't have one, uh, was Matt McMahon, who obviously was at Murray State and had built a juggernaut there. They'd won three conference titles. They'd been in the NCAA tournament multiple times. They were an offensively identified, identity-based team. They score a ton of points. They shoot the ball well. He's young. He's 43. Uh, and he fit, you know, there's not a three-year test for basketball, but obviously he fits some some components of it and that he won his own conference. He won his own conference championship. He's been to the tournament before. He's gotten higher than a nominal seed. He felt like a shoe-in. And so it was clear to me, we announced Golden, and like the, two days later, LSU hires 
Matt, so I have to imagine he wanted to go to Florida. First of all, Florida's a way better job than LSU. Second of all, LSU's about to get potentially hit with all sorts of crap. Right. The fact he took that job is really interesting, given what he had built Murray State into and given where his profile was. He was largely regarded as one of the top two or three up-and-comers to take. I really wanted him. I felt like he fit Florida very well. He's been, you know, he's not a Southern guy, but obviously he's, he's offensive. He's very offensive-minded. Golden is all defense. He's all defense. Everything is based upon defense, but he's also extremely tactical. I think Golden is probably right now a top 10 basketball mind in all of college basketball. That's what he's known for. I think he's super sharp. I think he's very tactical. He's very analytical. I think the Scott Strickland is obviously, which I guess makes some sense given he's a fan of this podcast. He loves analytics. He loves strategy. And I think Golden is the guy that you hire if you want to have a guy on your staff that is your basketball guru. Can he recruit? Can he recruit in the South? Can he build a roster in the modern era? Can he compete against other schools in the grinder of the SEC, which is spit out and chew out some really good coaches that have come from mid-majors that have had far more success than Golden's ever had? And how do we know Golden is good? Golden comes from a San Francisco program where the coach before him took them from nothing to something. Uh, you know, winning maybe 20 games a year. Golden comes in as a good first year, as a losing second year during COVID, as a good third year. Loses in a wildly entertaining overtime game against the aforementioned Murray State. And then gets the gig. He's never finished better than fourth in his conference with San Francisco. He's never won anything. Um, his mentor, who went to Washington State, is in the midst of an immense rebuild, doing very well. But this is not a rebuild at Florida. Florida is still an elite basketball school. I'm confused uh, as to why we took such an absolute home run swing on a guy who has zero evidence that he could do the things that matter the most. And here's where I'm gonna here's where I'm gonna put the hill, the hill that matters to me here, the die on the hill moment. Football, I think, is 25% coaching, 75% talent. Basketball, I think, is 90% talent, 10% coaching in college because there's so much transition. You can no longer keep guys for three and four years. You have to have immense talent to get there. And look at the programs who keep winning. They are so talented. What makes anyone think that this 36-year-old guy who's never recruited a marquee player in his life has spent two years as an assistant under Bruce Pearl and that he can recruit anybody? Now, with all that being said, Alan, I really hope that he can because I think basketball-wise, this dude will run circles around Mike White's terribly limited and horrifically bad basketball mind. He will destroy him in a game of basketball IQ. He will just destroy him. And I think he will destroy most other coaches. But Bruce Pearl said it best. Bruce Pearl loves this hire. And Bruce Pearl also said something that you cannot mistake. What he said was, I hope that I can recruit talent that's 15 points better than Golden. Because I know he's at least 10 points better than me in basketball IQ. But that is a very telling comment. And he loves it. it. He's being nice. But he's also literally telling you a reality which is that basketball is about talent assembly. And Bruce Pearl is nobody's basketball savant. Basic offense, at times it hurts him, but he gets talent there. He's generally successful. So I love everything about this hire, as you said, on paper. It's tactical, it's analytical, it's smart, it's sharp, it's forward thinking. I just don't know without any evidence what to expect from this scenario. But I will say this, for people that have said, this is a Mike White hire part two. You could not be more wrong. You couldn't be more wrong. These two people are in the same hemisphere of how they approach basketball or system building or life. They're not the same. 
So that's different. They might have the same results, but they're not the same. Right. Kind it's of a guy. similar like mid major who hasn't won a tournament game. Correct. That's similar, but they are not the same in terms of affect, how they discuss things, how they handle their team. None of those things. They're very different. So don't worry that it's Mike White part two and the rest of those things we didn't like. But the grade for me is got to be a C. And the reason is it's just if you stack the resumes up of Matt McMahon, just stack them up. It seems impossible for me for Florida not to have hired Matt McMahon. It's literally impossible. He's better in every way. He's more proven. He's taken something, someone from something to nothing. He's won things. He's a offensive guy which fits Florida so I don't get it I truly don't get it so here's what's fascinating and we we, we, love, yeah. we love sports we're fans of entertainment LSU and Florida have now in my opinion set themselves up as the two most interesting athletic departments to watch in the next three years you have Billy Napier versus Brian Kelly and now you have Todd Golden versus Matt McMahon literal direct hiring comparisons against each other and may the best man win. And I think both athletic directors are going to get totally benchmarked by how these hires work out for, for them. Sure. And it's fun. And I'm excited about that. It's going to be really fun. So I hope that I get to go on this podcast three years from now and say, Alan, thank God that we didn't hire Matt McMahon. He is not getting it done at LSU. It's a great hire by Strickland. Uh, and again, this is a weird one because I really do love so much about this guy. Like, I just love it strategically and mentally. I just also know that that's not what wins. You have to have talent. You have to have that. You have to have both, but you got to have talent. So, so we'll this see. is like a, it's a huge bet, right? And if you hit it, you look really smart. Yep. I, I don't know. I Again, there wasn't somebody out there that I really, so there I There was not a slam dunk. Like so I would have preferred to hire Mac McMahon, but, and I don't. I would like to ask Scott Strickland about this. I don't know if he could ever really even say it if it fits in this category specifically. Is there something disqualifying about McMahon that we don't know about that maybe because it's also interesting he took the LSU job? That's super interesting because that would say to me maybe that was the best job he could get because they're a little reckless and maybe they're willing to hire him. I don't know. Be- because it, it doesn't really jibe with where I thought he would have been going with all of these Not at all. jobs opening up. Because that's, you could say the LSU job is maybe better than the Florida job, all things being equal. I think they're roughly the same. But LSU has sanctions pending, potentially, or hovering over you at least, even if they never come down. So, yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. Outside of McMahon, there was not a person – on a list that I could come up with that I definitely prefer to Golden. Now, again, he has a huge amount of unknowns, but he also has a lot of check marks in his favorites. And that's why I put an A- minus on it because I think for where we're at, I like the big swing. Let's take a home run swing. There's no pressure on this job like, like there is at Florida football or Kentucky basketball, to use a different illustration there. So I think you have the freedom to take a huge, huge swing. And if it doesn't work, Actually, I think the life cycle of basketball coaches should be even shorter than football coaches because you're not having to build an entire infrastructure to be able to get to a success point, right? Your staffing is smaller. Your players, your roster is smaller. I think we could know two, three years in for sure. We don't need eight, right? To know whether Todd Golden is a good hire or not, and if he's not, let's replace him. 
Oh, I agree. And you know, he gets a six-year contract, which is sort of standard. But let's also let's also visit this. So there was a lot of discussion whether Strickland would fire Mike White after the year. Interesting. And clearly, I think we have to give kudos where kudos are due to a friend of the program, Scott Strickland. Here, I refuse to believe that he didn't play this card perfectly. So Mike White's going to get fired. You're going to fire Mike White. What's better than firing Mike White? Mike White leaving. To go to another school, wow. and then you get a buyout. You get money. Not only do you have to not pay his buyout, you get money. You get money. That is unbelievable. That is the best possible scenario. I, I love that you stopped to highlight this. Yeah. This was crazy. It was like someone calling us and being like, hey, we're going to take away your biggest sensitive issue, and we're going to give you money to do it. It was unreal. I was thinking, George is trolling us. This is fake. This is not This is not real. Like, what are they? What? Are they, what? And huge win. So I refuse to believe that Strickland didn't play that perfectly. I think he did. I think he moved so fast on Golden because he already had a really good idea. He wanted to get him. Um, and so this is his guy. And again, I, I will say this. Like as much as I just sort of said, hey, I'm worried about these things. You're, you're correct to say basketball, first of all, is an incredible crapshoot of who you hire and who works. Just look at the SEC. Look at yep. some of the coaches that have not worked in the SEC that were fantastic at mid-major programs. Perennial teams in the NCAA tournament that did well and couldn't do anything in the SEC. Uh, it's very competitive. It's very difficult. College basketball is so weird. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I will I will take an athletic director who's going who's gonna to move towards tactical, advanced thinking any day of the week over what you mentioned. One who takes the retread guy who's failed. Yeah, like places. Mark Sturgeon or whatever, Turgeon. Correct. Yeah, like if you're just hiring a guy no. who's been marginally successful somewhere no, else. No, please, no. Don't do it. And we've talked about this this swing with a big stick. Like, go for the fences. Like, you want to either win titles or don't win at all. So I'm all on board with all that. So that's why I think you said it best. The thing that really moved me was when we saw, obviously, Matt McMahon get hired. You're thinking, wait a minute, this guy was available? So a lot goes into these things we don't know. But hopefully you're hearing Alan and I say, this guy is a guy we can definitely root for. Uh, I think it's a big swing for sure. And if it does work, you might have you might have the next Billy Donovan. And, and look, if it doesn't, it could be an absolute disaster. It could be. And the disaster is never going to come from his coaching. It's going to come from the players. Yeah. It's going to come from Florida just not having talent. And so we'll see if he can do it. It's a big It's a big ask. It's a big move. I have to believe that he has a plan. Mm-hmm. Not to level Napier's does because no one had that kind of plan. But Scott was not being moved by something that didn't have recruiting. I've talked to Scott enough to know now that he's recruiting couldn't be any higher on his list of who do I hire than it is. So clearly Golden said things to him that made him believe he's got a system. He understands how to handle transfers and the AAU market and everything else to make sure he gets players here. And make no mistake about it. If this guy gets players, I have every reason to believe the Florida will be fantastic in basketball. We just have to get the players. That's what's going to be to watch, I think, with, with this hire. So Fun times going on here at Florida. Lots of exciting things. And the direct comparison between our rival LSU could not be more compelling for the next several years in football and basketball. Yeah, I want to go back to the Mike White thing. As you said, the news is almost too good to believe because firing him in coaching circles is a little sticky because you're firing a guy who's been to the tournament most of the time, right? And I think you know close observers realize he had flatlined here. And so you don't have to fire him. You don't have to pay the buyout. Honestly, I couldn't believe it. And that leads us to that last question. Why don't you ask it? Chris asked, will Mike White win a title at Georgia? And I'll say a title of any kind, SEC title, you know, any title. I mean, I would put that, I mean, give me whatever odds you want. I mean, 
Is there any data point that you could say and point to that would lead you to believe he would? Nothing. The most likely scenario is that he repeats what he did at Florida, that they turn into a solid team that can beat you, but will be underwhelming and they'll slide in around a bubble team, a 10 seed or whatever. I think that's the most like, I don't think they'll bottom out there. I think he's a competent basketball coach. I don't think there's anything at Georgia that would prevent him from doing what he did at Florida. And so that's where I think they'll slot in. And so this immediately weakens Georgia though, that I'm not worried about them hiring. If they had hired Todd Golden, I would have actually, so think about this way. I mean, like, man, did they just hire the next great basketball coach? feels like they had the opposite. They had so such a low vision for what they wanted to accomplish that they were basically like mediocrity sounds good to us. Let's, let's go and find that. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. I mean, if we're doing a Georgia podcast, the, the why you hire Mike white is fascinating because I'm still of the opinion, Alan, you're in the sec, you have huge resources. You keep swinging for the fences. You just swing for the fences. But the idea that they're kind of as best I can think behind closed doors, they're like, listen, we get Mike white. And here's what happens. He probably is totally mediocre for like three to five years. And then we're at least not so bad that the next Golden or McMahon or someone else will come here. And that's all I can think that they're at. They're at such a low place that they were like, we just need like a, a middle guy, a transition guy. He's not going to stay. There's no chance this guy's going to win anything. But he'll come here. He's going to get fired. Now he gets to say he wasn't fired. And it's like, we'll punt to the next round of candidates, which... I have to imagine that's what they did. It's also unbelievable to me that if I'm a Georgia board of trustee member and I'm in that meeting, I'm like, no, this is this is ridiculous. We're Georgia. Let's go take the next big home run guy. Let's go. Sw- what are you nuts, Mike White? It this can't guy's get worse than already is. Mediocre, never going to win anything kind of guy. Yeah, it can't get worse. Who cares? Just keep swinging until you get a guy. So they're going for the let's just be average strategy but uh but a huge win for Florida all the way around as you mentioned we didn't fire a coach Strickland gets buyout money for this it's fiscally responsible he goes and hires the guy that he wants who's a younger guy who's exciting who had a great press conference by the way mm-hmm. now we have two coaches again two guys that press conference wise drove us insane Mullen for for illogical crazy reasons and Obviously, Mike White, because he was the most boring, non-informational interview you could ever get. Just nothing ever remotely interesting came out of his mouth from an insightful standpoint. And right away with Golden Allen, you get insightful comments. Right away, he's willing to opine on some things that surprised him about Florida's performance on the basketball court last year. So I like the authenticity. I like the drive. I like it. So there's a lot to like, for sure. Again, big question marks with recruiting. And I hope, I hope. This guy pulls him in because I think he has everything else. So we're going to find out how that works uh, here in the future. All right. Upcoming stuff. Spring game analysis. Alan and I are going to bring that to you after the spring game. So you'll get that analysis on what we saw, what we liked, what we didn't like, what the first kind of real visible experience with Billy Napier's football team looks like. And Alan, other than that, we've reached the end of this uh, rather intense and lengthy mailbag episode. Any final thoughts from you? No, this is super fun. I hope you guys enjoy it out there. Uh, we had fun making it. Yeah, for sure we did. And thanks to everyone for their comments. We had people send us practice notes, which was awesome. We've got you know information here, information there. All the questions are really, really great. It keeps Alan and I obviously connected. And hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Hopefully if you asked a question, you got it answered in a satisfactory manner. 
And if you didn't, of course, you enjoyed all of the football talk here in the offseason. That's it for now. We will see you in several weeks. That's it, folks. See you later. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.